You're listening to the Movie Crew Podcast, and tonight we're discussing David Cronenberg's 1981 film, Scanners, with special guest, writer Christopher M. O'Brien. You have no trouble. Me, Fifth Element. You will be a weapon. You will be a minister of death, praying for war. But until that day, you are cute. Sound off like you got a pair. Podcast. I'm Brian Elkins. Uh, with me tonight, special guest, Mr. Christopher O'Brien. Thank you. Mr. O'Brien's on the show. He's a uh, he's a writer, a film buff, a film historian. Uh, not only have you written um, articles about movies and um, sci-fi and all that great stuff, but you're also uh, a, sc- a screenwriter, and you you won some um, some competitions here. Well, it's one script. It's sort of a techno thriller I co-wrote with uh, two other guys and. Uh, we did place kind of high in a couple of contests. We did win one of them. Um, of course, nothing's been produced yet. I do, uh, you know, I do write about the, more of the history of uh, science fiction, fantasy, and horror, kind of from a literary standpoint. But uh, and over the place I've been published are movie magazines, and I've always been intensely interested in the uh, history of sci-fi, fantasy movies, horror movies. And uh, it was basically reading about a lot of that as a kid that got me to go back and read some of the literature, some of the works and novels and stories these things were based on and whatnot. Can you tell us a little bit about your um, your, your techno thriller? Uh, it was titled Smart Home. Well, I mean, what well, can you tell the audience? Through, you know, <laughs> the whole thing away. But, uh, yeah, can you, give, uh, you give us a log line? <laughs> well, the title's kind of self-explanatory. Um, it just involves a family that moves into a um, new-on-the-market uh, smart home that's supposed to help uh, – their child because he has certain special needs and uh you know the uh the horrors that ensue i guess let's say it's like uh like shopping mall with an iphone <laughs> well no, i mean i don't know it kind of has strayed quite a bit from this in the writing but originally he was conceived as sort of a technological poltergeist oh that's uh that's a much better crossover i like that well, there, you, there you go <laughs> Uh, I did. I did want to bring up something. I, I noticed um, you got to do some co-editing for. Uh, well, go ahead. Ever since I was a teenager, I've always been uh, interested in H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, 
to the concepts of his stories and his life, and not his rabid racism. But uh, I've always been interested in, in learning about him. And you know, at the time I was reading this stuff, it was you know the 1990s, and I really wondered, you know, is there anyone out there? This guy died in 1937. I'm like, could there be anyone you know alive still who knew this guy? And I, you know, I did some research and got to meet this man named Julius Schwartz, who was his agent in the 1930s, and he later, uh, for many years, was an editor at DC Comics. So he. Uh, helped bring in The Flash, Barry Allen of the Silver Age, and he edited uh, Superman and Batman for many years. He also came up with the name Rachel Ghoul and a lot of stuff. And he had known Lovecraft. I was able to meet him at some comic book conventions and uh, found a man that was his friend uh, in later years before he died. He's, uh, you know, So that became a whole thing for me, doing all this research into Lovecraft. And um, I had come across uh, mention of this uh, manuscript that had been written in the 1970s and it had never been published by this uh, researcher named uh, Ken Fagg, Kenneth W. Fagg, Jr., and he had published a lot of other stuff, but for whatever reason, uh, he just never had brought this out. And, you know, I'd asked a particular question, and he sent me years ago Xeroxes of it. It was like this typewritten manuscript, and he just sent me the sections that pertain to what I'd asked, you know. And I didn't want to push it too far, like, how come this was never published? But I knew it. A lot of people had drawn out, even when they wrote the first uh, biography of Lovecraft, they, you know, would refer to it in the footnotes and stuff. So through another colleague, I had gotten it called it only in recent years of a full uh, – uh, Xerox of this whole thing. It was hundreds of pages, you know, and myself and this uh, gentleman in Finland that I was corresponding with, uh, J.M. Ryla, we were both saying, you know, why why was this never published? You know, this deserves to be out there, and we, you know, both realized that the guy was going to be turning uh, 65 in 2013, so we thought it'd be a nice, like, birthday surprise if we uh, could... Uh, initially, we were just thinking of scanning it and making it a PDF and just, you know, privately distributed thing, but he was saying that we could actually do, like, a print-on-demand version through uh, lulu.com. So we did that, and it came out, and, you know, the guy, I was afraid he would be mad about it, but he appreciated the gesture, and uh, other people saw it. And then this small publisher in New York called Hippocampus Press that uh, does a lot of Lovecraft and uh, horror, weird fiction stuff, they offered to do uh, an actual edition of it. So it took a while, uh, you know, because we had kept having to update these annotations and these bibliographies and whatnot, because more and more stuff kept getting published. But uh came out last year, so that's the thing I co-edited. But um you know, I, I find myself doing a, a lot of collaboration, too. I mean, you find other people that are interested in these things or that have, you know, done research or have certain information that you don't have, you know, so you have to kind of uh, sort of share, work together, and you know, to make a better uh, product or fill out all the details. You can't be the guy with the most toys that just sits on them. You know? That's right. Yeah, you, you, you can't. That's, that's very true. You, you do have to share. Art is meant to be shared. Yeah, uh, so tonight's film um, that... <laughs> We're going to talk about well, with Mr. O'Brien here uh, is David Cronenberg's Scanners from 1981. Uh, had a budget of 3.5 million, made 14.2 totally in the United States. So um, I guess this was uh, this was Cronenberg's uh, first hit. Yeah, they call it his breakout film. He'd done some other movies uh, before this. Hey, what would he done? He'd done Shivers and Rabid, uh, Fast Company, and The Brood. Um, and then this came along. Um, this had a, uh, a Criterion release. It had some extra features. Did, did you watch the behind the scenes on this film? Yeah, I watched all the features. Yeah, um, I noticed that they they had a lot of problems um, with like the screenwriting, and Cronenberg was constantly rewriting it. Um, I'm not 100 percent sure why they were rushed though. The interesting thing about Cronenberg is all these early films were somehow made through, um, which, again, I don't mean to, you know, garble this, but some kind of a tax credit or it was some type of a deal where they were uh, using, uh, I suppose, Canadian taxpayers' money. There was some kind of a thing where they were, not they were necessarily government-funded, but he was able to take uh, advantage of certain... Uh, 
yeah. credits and things that they offered up there. But in this case, it was something about in order to get to get the right offer, whatever the thing had to be completed by the end of the year. I'm assuming the year 1980. So it was kind of rushed into production, and apparently only filmed in the last couple of months of the year or what have you. Yeah, but I mean, on the behind the scenes, I don't know. It just seemed weird because I think it was 79. And the cinematographer said, like, oh, yeah, you know, in, in September, we were just waiting on the money. And then all the investors came through. We got the money. And it's like, go, hurry, quick, make the movie so we can get these incentives. But Cronenberg should have had the script written by then. Well, I was interested uh, to hear them say in that, you know, that this was an idea that, uh, you know, predated the brew, that evidently he wrote this in some fashion beforehand or at least had the idea. According to IMDb, I don't know how you know, heavily you want to uh, quote from them or whatever. In the trivia, it does say, quote, a very early treatment from 1976 entitled Telepathy 2000 takes place in the future, begins with a protagonist who is named Harley Quinn, telepathically raping a woman in a subway and was set as a spy what? movie. In this version, a company called Cytodyne or Citadine Amalgamate was breeding evil scanners to take over the world, and the U.S. government was employing good scanners to stop them. And did the Joker show up uh, right next to Harley Quinn? <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Years before Batman, the animated series. <laughs> Uh, I know, but come on. Uh, I don't know where they got I'm that. I'm just glad that the movie, the movie, the final movie as it exists, does not include any telepathic rape. I don't, I don't, I don't know if they, that machine wanted its nervous system joined, but we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I, I don't, I really, I'm not, I'm not 100 sure why Cronenberg uh, was rewriting it though. I, like, I understand like why they were rushing to get the movie done. Um, that makes sense, but. No, nobody interviewed really said why he was rewriting. No, and he's conspicuously absent from these uh, special features as well. Oh, that's true. <laughs> like one of the documentaries is like uh, Scanners and his collaborators. <laughs> or like Basically, interviews with yeah. his uh, collaborators, yeah. I do recall there was a series of books called uh, So-and-So on So-and-So. Like I have the one Scorsese on Scorsese. Oh, yeah, and it's something like on the, yeah, it's something like the Hitchcock Truffaut where it's a book-length interview with various filmmakers. And there was one Cronenberg on Cronenberg, or there is. Now, I remember seeing it in a bookstore as a teenager, and um, it had, you know, even like the the, the famous, uh, you know, head explosion scene frame by frame. You know, it took up two pages of, uh, you know, frames across showing how that was done in slow motion kind of. And uh, I'm sure it goes into detail about this, you know, but... Uh, at the time I flipped through the story, I, other than Scanners, I don't think I had seen very many of his films, you know, at that age either. Yeah, I don't, uh, yeah, I think the first one I, man, what was the first one I saw? Probably The Fly. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, the first one that I know for a fact I saw was The Dead Zone. Uh, oh, you know, I may have seen that on TV before as well. But, you know, I really didn't get into that again until, you know, after The, you know, after, after the Fly. And really discovered that. And I guess Cronenberg was really kind of a, one of the last directors last hard directors that was making stuff, you know, big in the eighties that I was, I was exposed to. He was the last one that I, I noticed. I, well, I mean, for my money, he's the most interesting of them, but we, we can get into that later. This does feature a lot of the normal Cronenberg, uh, usual collaborators. Um, we have Ronald Sanders coming in as the editor. And I think he's cut almost all of David Cronenberg's movies. Mark Irwin, who did, uh, he shot all of Cronenberg's stuff, I think up until the fly. And then, I, you know, I don't know why, but after The Fly, he never worked with Cronenberg again. Um, I'm not sure what happened. Yeah, it, it's kind of a shame because he is a really good cinematographer. Maybe not for this movie, but he, uh, by the time he, he was making The Fly, like, there is some amazing photography in The Fly. That, that's a gorgeous movie. Well, in later years, Cronenberg uh, used uh, Peter Shusitsky, the uh, DP of Empire Strikes Back. His excuse was supposed to be that he claimed uh, that Empire was the best looking of those films. I'll agree with that. 
once I started paying attention to such things, I wonder, you know, as a kid, I wondered what else Jusitsky did, you know, and I saw that he was working with Cronenberg. Um, in this in this past week, I just watched Fighter for the first time, and I and he was the DP of that. That's one with Ray, uh, Ralph Fiennes. Yeah, he's the crazy schizophrenic up in the yeah yeah secluded room. Another another tough sit, not quite as bad as stereo, but. Oh, oh, I guess, you know what? We should probably talk about that movie. Um, I, I think it's his first feature-length film. Uh, it's, it's 65 minutes long. Everything else I think he did before that was a short film. Uh, man, that is a really hard, it's a hard set. It's black and white. <laughs> Nobody says anything in the movie. It just has really monotone VO. A guy comes on and talks like this. These people have psychic powers. When it first started, I was afraid it was going to be entirely silent, you know, and I was saying to myself, leave it to Cronenberg to make a movie called Stereo and it'd be silent. Oh, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> I, have no, I have no idea why it's called Stereo either. Yeah. <laughs> I got nothing here, man. It, it was a weird movie. Um, some of the narration was amazing. I'm like, oh, man, that sounds really cool. And you think you're going to see it in the movie, but it just never happens. There's a, a well, great bit of narration where they're like, yeah, these two people committed suicide. And it was horrible. And then you just you don't see anything. Yeah, it kind of does break one of the cardinal rules of cinema. You know, it kind of tells rather than shows. But, I mean, if we can sum it up for the listeners in a nutshell, it's, it's, uh, it's a feature-length student film. Black and white. It actually was filmed on 35 millimeter. I, I was watching. I thought it was 16, but I started to look up some stats on it, and it was actually filmed at 35. Really? Um, yeah. It takes place in, in this uh, Canadian uh, Center for Erotic Research or something. It's, it's some kind of vague future setting, and then it's all in this one building. And uh, <laughs> just about this group of, I don't know if they're volunteers or what, subjects of, uh, of an experiment in telepathy that's apparently surgically induced you know, some of them, they give up the ability to speak and whatnot, and their speech centers of their brains are destroyed and whatnot. They have to learn to communicate entirely through telepathy. And uh, the thesis is something about, you know, if they can form these bonds with each other, that that can take the place of the traditional family unit. Or something like that. But you get that only from the narration. You certainly can't tell that from what's happening on screen. But uh, the fact that it does uh, involve, uh, you know, uh, psychical research and whatnot and... Uh, Interestingly, uses the, the, the word telepathists. It keeps referring to these subjects as telepathists. And uh, I noticed Cronenberg himself uses that uh, phrase in the uh, TV talk show interview that's included as a uh, festival feature on the Scanner's Disc Criterion release. Oh, yeah, you're right, he does. I don't know if it's a Cronenbergian coinage or what, but I've, I never, certainly have never really heard it in any other context. That guy is a lot smarter than me, so I'm just going to say, yeah, it's probably a thing. <laughs> And if it's Although not, I would argue he just made it have much more powers than just telepathy. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, well, that's well. He defines telepathy in scanners. He, he actually defines it as like uh, two nervous systems joining together, right? Um, separated by space. Yeah, I mean, he's he's actually putting a definition on it. So there are moments and it's in the movie a broad where, one. <laughs> well, I mean, the, he is saying that these people, these scanners, cannot move objects. They, they're not. Um, they do though. Yeah, they lift. I mean, he, they, you know, we, they when throw the, some he, people, but I, yeah, there's definitely some wire work. And uh, maybe, maybe, maybe they're maybe he's making them jump backwards. <laughs> I don't know when that see where the guy where I mean, we'll, we try to get to the scene in sequence, but there's a particular sequence where there's some wire work and these people, these people jump pretty far, I'd say. Yeah, maybe they're but just, you're right. They uh, don't they don't show them moving around everyday objects like you, like you say, like you see in Carrie and many other films and works. 
he does he does break the rules, but uh, he do, he does it for cinematic purposes that I'm I'm all right with. I'm on board for that. But in any case, the the main uh, linkage uh, to stereo, or apparently the reason that it's included as a uh, extra feature on the uh, Criterion Scanners DVD release, is that it does involve telepathy. And there is a particular scene where they mention again, talked about but not shown that one of the subjects uh, drilled a hole in his, their forehead. You know, in, in scanners they say to keep out the voices, but I forget exactly what the phraseology is in, in stereo. Yeah, it was it was something similar. He just wanted like uh, silence. His wife's doing it, but yeah, I forget, I forget the terminology. Well, there you go. It's essentially the same thing. Yeah. And as you said, uh, you know, there was an opportunity to somehow make, uh, you could loosely say that Stereo could have been a prequel to Scanners, but they don't seem to, you know, they don't capitalize on that. They don't take advantage of that. Yeah, they don't, they don't really seem, it really just seems like some ideas are shared. Um, mm-hmm. And that's it. Rough ideas that he's starting to play with. Because Stereo is, uh, it's, it's really, it's really unwatchable. It's, you know. I mean, I mean, okay. When I when I when I say that, let's put it like if you're going to go watch a movie or if you're watching Scanners, this is an enjoyable, entertaining movie with telepaths blowing up heads and spy versus spy. I mean, it, it, it's a fun movie. Stereo is not. I feel no, it's, 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 I fell asleep. Scanners is a much more conventional narrative as well. I, I you know, do you? I don't know. Do you think Scanners was confusing for its uh, for some audience members when it was released though? Uh, probably, I, I have to say <laughs> myself. Like I only, you know, saw it as a teenager, and I uh, honestly never watched it again until a couple of years ago. And uh, and it really was only in that second or third viewing that I finally did get my head around the plot. Like I didn't remember a lot of these details, and even that second time I watched it, I wasn't as clear. It it really did take three three showings or viewings for this entirely to sink in. And I still have some questions we'll get to. Yeah, I always find I forget about the the spy espionage plot. Yeah. Which is really what the the majority of the actual plot is, and what I remember is like, oh yeah, it's this, uh, this it's, it's these two brothers, and it's it's this dead doctor, and it's this big family thing. Well, now you're giving the whole thing away. Well, okay, I guess we should put a spoiler thing in the front, but that's how I remember the movie. You know, it's like this, oh yeah, it's this family of psychics, and when you watch the film, it's the in scene. Well, um, the one thing I was going to say, you were tight, you know, as far as. The narrative, apparently some stuff was shifted around because apparently in the preview version, the initial version shown uh, that the famous set exploding scene was the very first scene and they claimed a critic passed out in San Francisco or somewhere. Yeah. And uh, the liner notes mention as well that the thought apparently was, uh, you know, if you had that scene in the beginning, it was so shocking and, and, and whatnot that people would lose the thread and they wouldn't be able to follow the complex, uh, you know, uh, corporate espionage plot that follows. Uh, I don't know that. I, You know, the, the reason I bought the most was just the, you know, people uh, showing up late to the, you know, movie. They would miss the best scene of the film. I bought yeah, that. Yeah, that could be true, too. Yeah. That, it is very early. I mean, it's, you know, it's within the first 10 minutes. We did have to talk about one more collaborator for Mr. David Cronenberg, um, and that's Howard Shore. I think he's done every single score except for The Dead Zone. I mean, this is one of my favorite scores from Howard Shore. Oh, yeah, at least from The Brood on. I don't believe he did the music for Rabbit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yes, I, I was impressed very much with in this recent viewing, your most recent viewing with the score scanners. I always did enjoy the main theme, but I actually was impressed with the actual usage of the score in different scenes. We can get to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the opening title, the main, the main title is 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 awesome. I mean, he, he works best in those bombastic cues. Um, I even yeah. like the fly. Like, uh, I forget what the track. I think it's Plasma Pool. I think is the name of the track. It's it's the end credit big hit he does in the fly. I think that's my favorite cue from him ever. But man, this has got to be like a, a second or maybe a third. I don't know. Some of the some of the tracks in Lord of the Rings are pretty good as well. 
Yeah, well, that was what I was going to say. Is we should make clear to listeners if they're not familiar that Howard Shore did the score for all three Lord of the Rings films as well as the Hobbit films. And the reason that Peter Jackson picked him is because he was a fan of and familiar with these early Cronenberg films. Oh yeah, yeah. Because P- Peter Jackson is probably just as sick as David Cronenberg. Yeah, if people don't know, you do. I mean, he his his ultra gory early movies had more bent of humor to them, but uh, they're they're. Just as twisted as Ryan is saying in their own way. Oh, meet the Feebles. That's uh, that's something you got to see. So yeah, so is bad taste. That's that's another one you have to watch. Um, I'm dead, uh, dead alive. Oh my gosh, that is that's so ridiculously over top. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, they, they all they all three of them are, are more or less from a humorous bent. Whereas the Cronenberg stuff is not humorous. It, it is meant. I mean, people laugh now. The famous exploding head is kind of a gif, and they even use it on TMZ all the time. But it was shocking in its day, and it's, it is not, not meant to be funny. It is a straightforward, uh, you know, meant to be taken. This is seriously happening. Uh, I mean, the tag of the movie is uh, the ultimate in future shock or whatever. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I remember the end being, I remember that being the creepy part, but the, the head exploding, you know, even, yeah, even see that younger, I always laughed at that. Oh, I did too. I mean, it, but, you know, we were sick kids. Uh, well, it's just so comically over the top, and it just—I don't yeah, know—and yeah. how they show it, and they just hold on it for a good little bit. Yeah, it's a thing of beauty. So is this the part where we talk about how we discovered these, or how, do we want to get to that yet? <laughs> uh, we, dude, you just jump, jump it, just jump in, man. If you want to, if you want to bring. Hold it on, no, I mean, I'll let you. You're, you're the uh, no, man, no, this. dude, no. It's a it's a discussion podcast, so yeah. If you want to just uh, okay. well, I mean, it's hard. Thanks. As I was a kid, I, I certainly read a great deal about not only the movies that were coming out. I kept up with all new releases. You know, my fa- I watched basically all genres, all kinds of. Movies. My favorite, of course, being science fiction, fantasy, and horror, especially at that age. But I was very, I more like the older stuff. I was more interested in the history of things. And you know, Brian and I both watched all the black and white Universal films and Twilight Zones and all these old anthology shows and everything like that. But I always read about the making of them and kept up with articles. Starlog and Fangoria were two big magazines. In any case, there was some kind of an article about, I, I want to say within the concept, it was just about over-the-top or really strange movies of the 80s, uh, none of which I'd seen at the time. And one, I, to this day, I still have not seen is one called Possession or The Possession with Sam Neill and Isabella Johnny. Oh, my gosh, dude. Uh, yeah, I, I actually have that on DVD. It was, I'm sure you do. It was, it was, <laughs> just, no, it was just given to me. Uh, I just borrowed it from somebody like a month ago. I haven't watched it yet. So you have never actually seen it? I have not watched it yet. He, he told me it was... Uh, it was mind blowing. Yeah, I can still remember the descriptions of the film within this article. And another one that was mentioned within it was Videodrome. And just reading that about that as a kid, and the descriptions of that sounded really, sounded like something really out there. But it was something I was, it was something I wasn't sure I wanted to see. And I, I want, I, you know, my mind could be playing tricks with me. I could be confabulating. But I want to say that they ran some kind of a cut version of Videodrome on the Sci Fi Channel back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That? Yeah, they, yeah, they put like I remember a portrait. And look at the, the S&M factor and watching it with this TV. And so I was like, ah, I don't know that I want to watch this. So I didn't watch it when it came out. I don't know exactly when I did see that one. But, um, Earlier, when I was 11, you know, my mom had been reading Stephen King, and you know, Stephen King was very in these like guys and very popular, especially in the 80s, but still in the early 90s, you know, extraordinarily popular. And you uh, wanted to read the stuff because recently we were talking about the cycle, of the werewolf. I remember reading that cover to cover when I was 11, and Cujo. I graduated to the novel. I was reading those when I was in fourth, fifth grade. But in any case, the summer, or maybe starting toward the end of that fifth grade, I was 11 years old. I embarked on this sort of personal goal or quest or project to watch all the then existing Stephen King adaptations. So I was renting them all, you know, <laughs> renting uh, 
to Cujo and Salem's Lot and had some cherry this, that, and the other. And among them was the Dead Zone. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a good, it's a pretty good adaptation, I think. And it's a case where I actually think the novel is better. Well, you know, we can discuss that. But uh, it didn't make a huge impact on me. But I remember it was one of the better adaptations. I, without even having read the book at that age, I just remember as a film alone, even at that young age, I was able to discern that it was, uh, you know, a heck of a lot better than, uh, let's say, Graveyard Shift or whatever. Yeah, no, that that is that is definitely one of the better ones. I, I mean, that's up there with like uh, Misery and um, with Stand by Me, Shawshank. What else you got? Uh, Green Mile. King himself is supposed to be fond of the mist. Uh, oh my God! I fucking The Shining. Duh! I feel like an idiot <laughs> saying that one first. God, that's <laughs> actually the one that kicked it off for me. The movie was. Uh, oh really? Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I had these older cousins that also were doing. They they had seen it in the theater and they're like, "Yo, Shining is coming on USA this Wednesday, bro. You should watch it." You know. Uh, so I made it a point too. Uh, man, I, I didn't catch that one until uh, I don't. I don't think I caught that till I was a teenager. <laughs> the Dead Zone being one of the better adaptations. That, like I said, it's very subdued. It was almost like Cronenberg did a challenge to himself. You know that he was not going to rely on gore or over the top effects. Or it's, it's a very uh, low key subdued thing. But there is a, a sort of a gross out scene. You know where the character Frank Dodd commits suicide by basically punching his mouth onto these open scissors in his sink. And that I remember that. That image, you know, it stuck with me even at that age. It was very strange. Oh, yeah, dude. Everybody remembers that scene from that movie. Oh, yeah. That, that, that is, <laughs> that's like a rough all, moment. I was like, of all the ways guy could have did himself in, he chose that. You know? that, that is the, I remember being surprised it wasn't scene. that scary. Because right? even, even, you know, the back uh, cover is like a still of Christopher Walken. He's like in this tunnel. And just the cover, the font, and it looked like it was going to be something really like weird and scary. You know, I was kind of surprised. I mean, I enjoyed it, but it was different. But I was surprised by how you know subdued and how different it was from a lot of other King stories and movies. I guess, I guess, when you watch The Dead Zone, it kind of takes you aback when you realize that like the whole movie is not going to be him working with the cops. And like once the Frank Dodd part's over, it's it's over, it's done, and there's no more serial killers or any any of that. Yeah. It just kind of ends and. It's sad to say I'm just now making the connection, but it is another Cronenberg dealing with uh, you know psychic powers and whatnot. And it, well, it's kind of interesting you bringing up King because you know it's kind of the whole telekinesis, psychic uh, telepathy that kind of all started really with Carrie because that was a huge hit. Uh, when was that? Seventy six. Yeah. Um, and De Palma did that, and then De Palma even followed that up with The Fury um, with Kurt Douglas in uh, I think seventy. That was seventy eight. Yeah, um, we definitely have to talk about The Fury. Yeah, and then King even had uh, what Firestarter out before Scanners was released, and this was kind of like um, I, I don't know. I guess this was the last big movie of that telepathy era. Oh, I guess there was that Firestarter film as well with Drew Barrymore. I guess that was the last one. That, that was kind of the the end of it. Of that seventy. I'm trying to think of other some of these other examples of negative don't really apply. But during the seventies, I think a lot of these these things are sort of in the zeitgeist or were talked about. Yeah, like, you know, those are the you know the big the big examples, you know. The Fury is a Brian De Palma. You're the De Palma guy. It's based on a novel by John Farris, who is a uh, suspense and horror writer. Um, it does involve uh, this. Is, it's more of a teenagers or adolescents with uh, you know psionic or psychic powers, and, and again, it does involve these shadowy uh, government or corporations that want to control them and yeah. use them for their own ends. It's very similar. The plot's very similar to the Firestarter. With, like, the government, like, wanting to control these psychic... Well, I guess that's very similar to Scanners, too, now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah. It's interesting, maybe because of the fury that Cronenberg moved away from having an explicit, uh, you know, government presence in the film. Okay, there's not a government presence, but they're... I mean, they're selling their something... They're selling their weapons, and they're selling these Scanners, I guess, to some government agency. Oh, yeah, yeah. Some, no, I was some, just saying some, that, you know, according to that, you know, trivia about this earlier version, you know, it was... Uh, 
the U.S. government was employing the scanners. Uh, oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, because, you know, ComSec in the movie, you really don't know who or what they're going to do with these scanners. Well, I know Cronenberg is always careful to uh, sort of cover himself. It's always they're planning to take over North America or it's the biggest this in North America. <laughs> hey, man. So he wants to make sure, uh, you know, the good old U.S. of A and Mexico are covered as well. <laughs> Oh, all right. Um, On that note, I think we're going to take a break. Uh, We're going to play the trailer for David Cronenberg's Scanners. We'll be back. I would like to scan all of you in this room, one at a time. There are four billion people on Earth. 237 are scanners. They'll control your mind, conquer your will, manipulate your body like a toy. Self-destruct, five seconds. The pain begins. And your flesh. And your brain. Four seconds. You feel its power. Three seconds. The pressure. The pounding. The terror. Two seconds. You can't breathe. It chokes you. It destroys you. One second. You begin to self-destruct. Experience the terrifying power of scanners. You pray it will end, and it will. Scanners, their thoughts can kill. All right, we're back. And that was a trailer for David Cronenberg's 1981 head-exploding film, Scanners. You know, it's a trailer from 1981. What are you going to do? I mean, you know, they're, they're doing stuff, cutting in heartbeats and things and sound effects. Uh, we're, we didn't put in the, the long trailer, the one that was uh, just uh, the opening. Oh, I guess it was the head-exploding scene. Which at one time was the opening scene. You know, I... I will defend that trailer, though, if you'd like. I mean, it doesn't work uh, audio-wise, as we said, but uh, the one that you said was weak sauce, the one that included with the DVD. Yeah. I will say it's odd enough. My, I, I mean, I'll say my, this is just an oddball I am, but my all-time favorite trailer ever is the trailer for The Shining. I don't even know if I remember that one off the top of my head. It's just <laughs> annoying, irritating music that's not in the movie. <laughs> it's just a, this ever-slow scene of the elevator doors opening, all the blood pouring oh, out. Oh, yes, and yes. And crowds going by. I do remember but both that. that and this, that this particular Scanners trailer have the uh, quality of, even if people are talking in the theater, they both have annoying music, and they both have the, the what-the-f quality, you know, like enough where I think people would stop talking, and like, what is this? <laughs> I think they're kind of annoyingly attention-getting. Uh, yeah, no, I can see that. I can see that. And they definitely showcase, you know, the good effects, like a trailer should. Um, yeah. The Scanners starts off... We got uh, some some great Howard uh, Shore score going on. Uh, very bombastic, very big, and um, <laughs> we get uh, we get introduced to um, our, our hero uh, Cameron Vale, played by Stephen Lack. Uh, man, b- b- before we go any further, what did you think of Stephen Lack? I don't want to come down on him too hard. I mean, he's an extremely odd choice for a lead. Um, in a certain way, I think the fact that this film does have such a strange lead kind of adds to its quirkiness or kind of adds to its uh, charm. I'll agree with that, yeah. Isolated scenes, I mean, there are some there are some isolated scenes even on YouTube where people have pointed out the great acting in some of them, and there are some hilarious line readings, <laughs> strange choices, you know, that you wonder, couldn't they have done another take or what, but apparently this was made quite a bit under the gun. There's, I mean, whether he's... You know, it's hyperbole, he's exaggerating. There's one scene, I believe, where Stephen Lack explains in one of the uh, social features that they really only had, like, two takes and to do some of these scenes. That is where he suffers. It's delivering that dialogue. He has some very, like, just cold, blank, emotionless reads of some of the stuff. Like, 
it causes comedy in un- unintentional moments in the film. It's not I mean, terrible. You should explain that he is apparently like a, uh, a painter, like a visual artist by trade. And apparently he had, I don't know if he was like a street performer too, or he had made a couple of like artsy or underground films in Canada. And that is how he came to Cronenberg's uh, attention. He said he had trouble like just memorizing lines and things like that. So I, I, I'm not, yeah, again, and like he didn't go on to star in another film after this. So I'm not, I'm not trying to like give him a hard time, but you know. He, he's really, really wooden in <laughs> some of the dialogue scenes. It's just excruciatingly yeah, well, bad. Script as well. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm looking at an online transcript right now. You know, the, the Dr. Ruth, and we'll talk about it in a minute, you know, says in the very beginning, I suppose you don't speak much. No, it's not surprising. You know, they talk about his lack of communication skills. I mean, there's another scene where uh, the girl, uh, Kim, tells us, you know, you're not even human. You know, so I think he, you know, he probably was directed or, you know, some way the performance was somewhat fashioned to be a bit uh, robotic. I was getting ready to point that I do think it works in this opening bit here before he's like, you know, released and, um, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's better. And in this beginning scene, he's a homeless man. He, he's living on the street. He's like picking up cigarettes off of <laughs> unfinished cigarettes off people's tables um, and scraps of food in this mall. He accidentally scans somebody. And that's, you know, that's how he, he gets noticed and gets and gets captured. But I, I think he's really good in the scanning scenes. Like, I knew exactly what he was doing. Um, you know, it, it's the first scene that you see any of this telekinesis or telepathy or a- anything ever come into into play. And uh, I thought he handled it well. Well, we should point out he is uh, basically what they shoot, like a dart into his uh, neck or his arm. Oh, yeah, they want to keep him alive. Yeah, well, I mean, we come to find out that he's being apprehended by these uh, agents of this uh, firm called Consec. <laughs> Uh, man, and they have some, like, uh, Bond layers, bro. Like, they meet in a, in a Bond, it's, it's a low-budget Bond corporate headquarters, but it's a Bond villain layer. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, going by that stereo and even in Rabbit, you know, Cronenberg is sound of these kind of uh, vaguely futuristic-looking buildings where, uh, and I think the Brute, too, where some sort of, you know, bizarre surgeries or bizarre therapy or something's going on, you know, behind these doors of these uh, cement uh, futuristic buildings. And uh, oh, we get Patrick um, Patrick Mc, what Patrick McGoohan yes McGoohan <laughs> Patrick McGoohan uh, does show up um, Doctor Ruth um, he's got a really cool introductory scene where I don't know he's kind of a dick and just <laughs> ties up Cameron to a bed and starts torturing him. <laughs> he immediately starts uh, sort of uh, uh, down talking. Why are you such a derelict, such a piece of human junk? He brings all these people in and, uh, you know, the fucking oh, yeah, camera, yeah. the scanner, like he can't, he can't handle all the voices because he can't, he can't block them out. Uh, all every, he hears everybody talking all at once. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not quite clear what's going on. Uh, he wakes up in this sort of, uh, it seems like he's had haircut and shaved and he's tied to a bed. It says he restrained. And then, yeah, suddenly this, uh, scientist introduces uh, lets in all these uh, people. You don't really know what's going on. They're kind of conversing amongst themselves and then they quiet down and, and, uh, yeah, you just see him kind of writhing in pain, and yeah, I guess it is kind of torturous. I didn't really think of it that way. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's cruel, that... it's cruel to say the least. <laughs> Dr. Ruth, his character, uh, the more the movie goes on, you find out he's more uh, more of a mad scientist uh, kind of dick as the movie goes on. He's actually my favorite character in the movie. <laughs> Really? He's well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess <laughs> he is. Part, I mean, part of he's, the, he's, the uh, just begooing himself, and it's sort of a he's very Orson Welles esque, and just you know, uh, and just some of his delivery of some of the lines too is is, is quite memorable. I would say. McGowan didn't seem like um, well from everybody else's accounts. I should say it didn't seem like he was very happy to be there. 
No. <laughs> he seemed a little confused and lost in what the movie was. Because I don't even know if it, everybody had a finished script. Um, well, it could have been the kind of thing, too, where everyone just had their sides or whatever. You know, maybe no one saw the completed script. But um, after the freakout scene, we get the uh, we get the head explosion scene. I, it's Michael Ironside's like introduction, and it's a uh, it's a real nice action scene in the film. It picks the pace up in the film a lot. We're having a telepathy battle here. We have a head explosion. Th- there's a car crash. Um, people are getting shot. Man, for three point five million, I can't believe they've got all this stuff on screen. Well, we should uh, describe it. It's a scene where in the, it's not necessarily public. I think it's supposed to be for these, uh, you know, defense contractors or what have you. It's supposed to be a demonstration of scanning. Yeah, yeah. It's, so you have a guy who's a scanner up on a podium or, you know, up on a sort of at a table in an auditorium setting, and he's asking for volunteers from the audience. And obviously, I guess people are kind of afraid or distrustful. Nobody volunteers, and suddenly this one guy from the back uh, volunteers. I let him up, no problem. You know, he has him to, cl- to clear his mind or, or you know, to, to uh, think of something that uh, it's not going to give away like a trade secret or from whatever organization he supposedly represents, you know. So, you know, they agree on it. And then suddenly uh, the main scanner guy is writhing in all these, this, uh, you know, pain and, and agony. And it increases and increases and, you know, as it does the soundtrack, everything, until he like violently explodes in front of this whole audience. Michael Ironside and, uh, and this guy, man, they are acting their asses off, bro. And I really, I also like how Cronenberg uh, is cutting um, back and forth between <laughs> the guys pretty much just shaking their head to crazy sounds that you're hearing on screen and the uh, reaction from the audience. It is yeah. really, it's a really well cut scene. Like the tension is, is being held throughout the entire scene and it does crescendo with that beautiful giant watermelon exploding. Uh, yeah. I mean, the characters are Cronenberg. They couldn't get this uh, effect, you know, to, you know, show up perfectly, or you know, at least as the, the way they envisioned on screen, and it just involves filling a uh, sort of a dummy or fake head with uh, dog food and rabbit livers and blowing it apart with a shotgun. This is the kind of picture we're talking about here, people. And uh, in any case, that you know, they they were actually going to to do that apparently with uh, Ironside there in the room, or sitting beside this, you know. And he was joking that he, uh, or more or less, told him, you know, that they would have to increase his salary and also give him like an insane amount of insurance for him to sit there for that, you know, the, while this uh, buckshot, you know, ricochets around the room and stuff. And they, they, you know, once they realized that what it was going to cost to have him there, you know, they just filmed it separately. And it is kind of funny that once he's. Uh, you know, again, apprehended by these guys as soon as this happens. There's not a bit of this gore on any of his suit or his hair or anything. <laughs> no, yeah, you don't you don't see anything. Like, once the head explodes, it's <laughs> well, like... that's the reason. I mean, you know, I never thought about it before, really, until uh, having seen that feature and watching the film again. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, once the head explodes, there is no aftermath on the room at all. Like, everything is completely clean. And it's just like, oh, yeah, we're just escorting out of here. Nobody just and you know the, the film does show its budget exploded. too. I mean, I, I even noticed you know the last couple of times I'd watched too how kind of sparsely populated the room is. You know, now if it was a you know big budget remake or so nowadays they would have a complete you know completely full uh, auditorium. I feel. Yeah, well, I, I I did kind of like that though. That you know it wouldn't be completely full. You would just have your select like heads of yeah, you know, well, different governments. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I thought that was cool. It's um, supposed to. It's not. I was going to say a public. It is supposed to be like a private demonstration of this, uh, you know, cutting edge technology or whatever you want to call it. Revic, um, at that point, he's immediately apprehended, and I, I love mm-hmm. that uh, scene where they try to go get him the uh, the drug that blocks the um, the scanner's ability to scan. What's it called? Um, ephemeral. Ephemeral. That's right. 
and they're going to go give it to him. And he, he actually makes the doctor stick it into his own hand. That it, Unbeknownst I, to anyone, too. Yeah, but dude, it is a... It's, I love needle gag scenes like that, dude. They make me squirm like nobody's business, and they are always so effective. It's just a... It's, a, it's an easy movie trick. Man, it, it works every time. But then it's another, you know, uh, trust you just, what, what, what world is this? What's going on here? You know, this, give him a shot of ephemeral. You know, you have no clue what that is. Yeah, that's true. I mean, well, there's, that's, that's kind of how a lot of this movie is. You know, you just kind of have to go with it and you'll get information sparsed out to you later. A lot later. <laughs> Sometimes after characters die. True. But in any case, he's apprehended and they're supposedly uh, going to be, uh, you know, removing him to a uh, consec headquarters. And, uh, you know, all doesn't go according to plan. There's a bit of a. I wouldn't necessarily call it a car chase, but, uh, you know. It's a car crash. He, he makes, he makes yeah. one of the security guys uh, wreck into a stone wall or a brick wall or something. I don't know. You know, and they keep cutting back to Michael Ironside, uh, you know, who is, like, crammed down in the back seat on the yeah. floor. <laughs> Some of his faces are a little over the top in that part, I will say. Oh, man, I love his scanner faces, dude. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, but he, I mean, he's, he, I think he's a little more effective in the next, you know, in the next scene where he causes the guy to shoot himself and stuff. He's a little more underplaying it. But in any case, he quickly dispatches with these. Uh, I think they say, counting the scanner, that uh, six people die in this incident. I didn't really understand this. Uh, I mean, I guess David Cronenberg just has a really low uh, opinion of uh, pharmaceutical companies and uh, corporations in general. But Comsec is just like somebody attacked us. We need to fucking eliminate them. Wait, 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 guys, what are we talking about eliminate? Oh, we mean murder them. <laughs> I mean, they're meeting in a corporate in a, in a corporate room. Like, they figure out what's going on. They figure out it's this Revit guy, it's this other scanner. They're like, okay, well, we just need to murder everybody that, that attacked us. They're not going to go to the police or anything. Yeah, well, I mean, you have to think of this. This was made in a, you know, a post-Watergate, uh, you know, distrust of uh, government and shadowy organizations, you know, vibe. But it's weird because it's in corporate America, and it's this, like, corporate uh, pharmaceutical tech company. And, and you never know. Yeah, like, you do come to find out that this character, uh, Keller, is actually uh, a double agent later in the film. But uh, they're all aware of these guys. Everyone in the room is aware of the scanners on, on some level. And I don't know. I was going to say if uh, the, the very company realizes that as you come to find out that they are responsible for them, too. And maybe they feel like they need to cover their tracks or what have you. Well, later in the movie, they say they, uh, they bought the Dr. Ruth's entire company because he found out about the scanners and stuff so yeah i mean I, they have to know all they're the board all aware members. of scanners at least if they're not aware that you know how responsible they are for them or whatever yeah they definitely want to use them for weapons and like but, you know, uh, go read this yeah, person's so mind anyway, dr ruth advocates for using a you know they basically more or less yeah you, you know it takes a scanner to fight a scanner you know and he he seems to be the sole advocate and it's almost like a courtroom thing you know where he he's able to argue his point you know enough to sort of convince the board but you can tell right away that this doctor, or this rather, that this Keller is very, uh, you know, dead against him. He's a spy for oh, Revic. Yeah, but, uh, you know, there's a scanner underground developed in North America, and, you know, he says it's led by this Daryl Revic, you know, that you all saw him last night, or he's the one, you know, that caused all this havoc at this demonstration. Yeah, well, they say they're going to go after this other company in North America, but it's just... It's... Uh, they, they, a scanner underground. I think they're talking about, uh, the you know, they believe whatever organization that Revic is, is uh, starting. Um, unless it's supposed okay. to be, again, it's unclear, unless it's supposed to be the one that the Kim's group of scanners. I don't know. Well, it, well, it turns out, like, because uh, Revic is actually, like, infiltrated ComSec. Right, right, but we don't find out uh, for quite a while. It's a little so muddled there. You know, uh, Dr. Ruth is advocating, you know, if we can get a scanner basically to work on our side, you know, convert him to our cause, and basically use him as like a spy, 
So then it's where you know the sort of this uh, espionage type of plot begins. You get as much plot here as you do in a Bond movie. Yeah, I mean, it, it gets the point across as to what what they're going to you know that we here, this is the villain. This is what we're going to do. You know, this is the reason that they've taken in this homeless guy in the beginning. Um, it pits Keller and Ruth against each other, and uh, for whatever reason, Patrick McGowan chooses to act uh, this scene in a couple hours completely slumped down in a chair. <laughs> I was wondering why he was doing that. Yeah, well, no, we should point out, I mean, that Magoo was an Emmy award-winning uh, actor for his, you know, he guest starred as a villain a couple times on Columbo, won an Emmy for that. Uh, he had been in an uh, earlier film, one called, uh, rather, TV series over in England um, in the early 60s. One was called Danger Man, and one was called Secret Agent. And I may be wrong on this, but I want to say that that Secret Agent is where the Agent Secret Agent Man song comes from. Yeah, so that's that exactly the, where it comes from. And that he basically took that same character without naming him and created a uh, very bizarre, uh, unique uh, series of his own called The Prisoner, where he basically took that secret agent character who suddenly finds, you know, is gassed and finds, wakes up in this room uh, on this strange island that he can't escape from. And it's very strange. It's very uh, science fictional. And it's full of gobbledygook, double talk, uh, you know, why am I here? That would be telling. And, and I, I don't understand, you know, if he's the man who wrote and conceived of that, I don't understand why he would have such a problem with the concept of this or with some of the dialogue in this. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, well, again, I guess maybe I, maybe Cronenberg was just changing too much, you know? I mean, on the fly, I, that's the only thing I can think of. Uh, you're, you're right, because the, the prisoner is very, you know, it's got, it's got a lot of sci-fi. It's got a lot of crazy. I mean, it's the it's the precursor of Lost. Like, if you liked Lost, I mean, the prisoner kind of had that vibe to it. You know, done in the sixties. Well, was that sixties or was that seventies? Yeah, sixties. It was sixties. Okay. So yeah, I mean, it was. And you want to keep watching to see what is this island? What's going on? And folks, just like Lost, uh, you're not going to really find out <laughs> by the end of the show. <laughs> I don't even remember how that ends, dude. I remember it was so unsatisfactory. I don't remember it. I just remember that he's the whole thing is he's number six. Everyone on this island has their, their you know, they're giving you a number and taking away your name. Yeah. And he's number six, number five, number two, and uh, he's trying to find who is number one, who is number one. And then finally they take him to number one, and it's again kind of down in a weird uh, lab type of setting, and you see a guy in a, uh, a white uh, hood. I hate to say it, but it is almost like a Klansman's robe. And uh, he rips off the mask, and there's various things underneath. He's ripping different masks off. There's an ape at one point, and then finally it's himself, and he just kind of, you know, it's, it's like a version of himself, Magoo, and that's like completely barking mad, and they both kind of start like laughing maniacally. <laughs> that's one ending, or at least that's somewhere in that last episode, I know. I have no memory of that at all, and uh, maybe I'm the better person for it. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. I can only imagine with, you know, that was the reward for people's patience watching the show, you know, throughout uh, the entire summer, 1968 or nine. Uh, I, I, I always liked the uh, the reruns on Sci-Fi Channel. It, they were it, it was a good way to kill thirty minutes to an hour. Apparently, when they show them on there, because according to YouTube, uh, that writer that I had the photo with Harlan Ellison was the uh, host of those. Oh, what really? Yeah. Oh, did not know that. All right, we're getting off track here. Uh, so in any case, the, the next scene is you start to see this, not necessarily even a montage, but sort of this training sequence of yeah. uh, Cameron where Dr. Ruth is working with him personally. It's pretty much, it, it's as montage as Cronenberg uh, ever gets. You find out uh, about Daryl Revick. Um, you know, he used to be a member of the scanner group, and now he's rebelling against it and gone rogue and trying to destroy it. Uh, you get the awesome 8 millimeter scene with him in the hospital um, where he's talking about like whole people being in his head. Man, that that's one of the best scenes in the movie, dude. 
Yeah, it's kind of chilling. Arms, legs, hands. You don't really know what he's talking about. And, he, and yeah, he's like, oh, well, no, it's a, it's a doorway. I need to distill. It's like, what the hell? Yeah, dude? he has this bandage on his forehead, and there's an eyeball kind of drawn on there with pen or what have you. And they were asking him, what, what's with this? You know, and, and he apparently is cut into his or drilled into his forehead to sort of uh, silence these voices in his head. Yeah, it is. It is really, really uh, chilling. And you can tell Cronenberg knows that that scene's really good because the minute Dr. Ruth turns off the projector, you get this great thunderclap and yeah. this thunderstorm that runs throughout the entire scene where McGowan starts spitting out all this exposition, um, you know, and giving all this backstory on him. And Yeah, and then it's Revic, you know, and he says, you know, he basically says in many ways he's your enemy, you know, I don't even know him, you know, he knows who you are, you know, he has a master list of all the scanners that were ever born, and he's seeking them out one by one and, you know, asking them to join him, and if they don't, if they refuse, he kills them. You don't see a lot of scanners in this movie, and they say there's like uh, 200 and some. So I take it if... They're not with Revic. He's just murdered everybody else. Yeah, I mean, basically every, almost every other scanner. And I was going to say, just about anyone that comes in contact with Cameron dies horribly in this movie. Yeah, because they do release him. And I guess, okay, that, that's where his performance, like, I'm okay with Stephen Lack, really in the beginning of the film. It's like once he gets trained and, like, he can control his powers, like, and they do that cool scene where he, he controls that guy's heartbeat. Yeah. And they, they put him in a suit, and he goes straight up to this, uh, he, he goes up to this art dealer because he needs to find out about this one art, uh, this artist, uh, Benjamin Pierce or something. I forget what the character's name is. Yeah, it's Benjamin Pierce. But, I mean, okay, so he, he goes and he, he meets this art dealer, and his character should should show some kind of change on screen, and it doesn't, dude. It doesn't happen. He's the it's the same as when he was the bum. Yeah, I guess that is true. It's not a uh, it's kind of a static character, not dynamic. And the reason I bring up the art dealer scene here in particular is, is it kind of sticks out for me because when he wants to know about this artist, the art dealer tells him like, oh, "No, look, uh, he doesn't he doesn't want to be bothered. You can't have that information." Stephen Black's character just comes out and goes. Well, maybe you can just think about it real hard. Yeah, I did think about that as I was watching last night. I figured he had to at least, you know, verbally suggest it. You know, I guess, you know, it's not cinematic for him to just suddenly go in the guy's mind. And, you know, you know, they could have done that because later there are scenes like that. But uh, where you hear thoughts from the other person. But I think it's just with other scanners. Uh, no, yeah. it's not actually cause with those security guards. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, it is. That is kind of odd and awkward. Yeah, it's kind of like Cronenberg was like, OK, look, I got to I got to let the audience know somehow that. This guy kind of sucks as a spy. Let me communicate it some way. It just felt like he was trying to say something, something to us there because it's just a bizarre line. Like, why would you throw that in there? But in any case, this art, this or this artist or sculptor whose works are on display at this gallery is another scanner that he's trying to get to, you know, to uh, find out more information about uh, Daryl Revick. And while he's yep. there, after he has this exchange with this gallery owner, um, at one point Cameron is scanned, and you know, his, his he gets a nosebleed as a result. And you know, he goes to look to see who did it, and you know, the person is gone, just like Batman. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so that's what that feels like. Uh, but then when he goes, he finally meets Benjamin Pierce, meets up with him. Um, you know, he didn't really learn a lot. He just, he finds out the person's name that scanned him at the art dealer's place. But the scene is really cool in terms of it's like a set decoration. The production design is really cool. Like, cause he's an artist. He's got this really badass like living room that's inside a sculpt of his head. Yeah. It's really cool. 
and they have they do yeah, this. And they have to go inside this to have a brief conversation. And uh, one thing I do I do love you know Benjamin Pierce's uh, Burt Reynolds s class. Uh, you know when he first uh, tried to question about this, he gets your <laughs> type of laugh out of him. <laughs> yeah, that that actor that uh, that's playing the Benjamin Pierce character. Um, he's in a bunch of David Cronenberg flicks. He's in yeah. He's in the Brood. Uh, uh, Stins and uh, man, he's in something else too. But I, th- those two, I, I definitely know of off the top of my head. It, it does play off of how kind of you know awkward or inhuman you know Vale or even Stephen Lack you know is you know the guy is does play the role with you know humor and so I'm one of you, or you're one of me. Yes, you know what does that mean, kind of. And uh, the main thing the guy you know says about the reason he creates all this stuff is to stop these voices. You know, I, through my art, you know, my art keeps me sane. And you know you have to wonder why. Is that true of David Cronenberg as well? <laughs> uh, probably more than he'd like to admit. <laughs> In any case, this scene is violently interrupted. Oh yeah, man, with some uh, some assassins. Oh, oh, let me ask you a question. Did you think these assassins were scanners? Maybe I'm not. Maybe the first time I saw it. But uh, they don't seem to be. They more seem to be, you know, because it's very hard to make out. Basically, let's just say what happens. While he's in there talking to this guy, we see a vehicle uh, pull up, and then three uh, mysterious people come out with guns. In any case, they come in there, and they just blow poor uh, Benjamin Pierce away. So while he's dying, uh, you know, also, I mean, Cameron pretty much dispatches these people. I mean, you know, you say he can't telekinetically move things right, but, I mean, to me, he throws the shit out of these people. It's definitely some wire work. I mean, he launches these people into the air, and, you know, they... uh, No, yeah, Cronenberg's breaking his own rules. He's totally breaking his own rules here, man. Well, uh, you know, the, uh, I would argue, I mean, the the Wikipedia page for for, uh, scanners claims that the scanners' powers include telepathy, mind control, empathy, biopathy... Cyberpathy slash technopathy. Well, look, no, 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 it's it's anything you can do as long as you're linked to another nervous system. He sets up those rules in the film. Those are the rules that he set up in the screenplay. That's what it's it's spoken to us and established to us, the audience. And that's what I'm going to go with. And you're right. If they, if these people are being thrown, like you are doing something that are is outside of our movie rules. You know, like if you establish a rule in a movie, you have to obey it. And I don't know. I mean, just, yeah, just like a kid, you know, when, when, when Superman ripped a S off of his chest and it became a big plastic thing that went around the bad guys, I just took it for faith. Okay. You know, I guess this is one of his powers. You know, it's not at all, you know, according to comics, but I just went with it as part of the movie. And that's how I feel about this scene. Well, uh, but in any case, he dispatches these uh, assassins, uh, you know, he gets to Benjamin Pierce and, you know, Benjamin Pierce is dying and he picks up his uh, dying thoughts, which are very hard to make out. I'm looking at this transcript now where he's warning about Revic. He'll turn you into a zombie, a robot Dude, killer. Look, man, you cannot hear anything they're saying, man. You know, okay, okay that, that's one thing. I guess we haven't really talked about, like, the uh, the scanner voices inside your head. They all sound, like, really – they sound muffly. They're like, yeah. hey, I'm a voice inside your head, and you can hear me right now. No, there's more of a – I mean, it's, it, I would call it a gelatinous uh, noise. It reminds me of a uh, creep show. It reminds me of uh, Where's My Father's Dead Cake, that voice. Yeah, and, it, uh, it's got some digital when, effects when to it. King, when Stephen King has turned into a swamp thing, he's about to blow his brains out. It sounds like that same kind of uh, warped voice. Where it's, uh, you know, it's almost like it sounds like it's underwater, you know, there's like a wave going through it. But uh, I will say it, it is it is damn difficult to make out the dialogue in the scene. But in any case, the information he learns is he's warned that uh, Revic will turn him into a zombie, a robot, a killer, which is what I took those uh, three uh, assassins to be. I took them to be just, uh, you know, human beings that uh, Daryl Revic has completely uh, taken over. I, I, I didn't get that until um, this scene later. 
Um, cause yeah, because they don't ever, I mean, they don't ever demonstrate any, uh, you know, scanning ability. Well, it's not only that, but they do the, the scene later, uh, two of the guys, uh, two of the assassins at this barn, right. That attack Benjamin Pierce. They later show up and kill everybody at the scanner seance. Right. You yeah. know, and they, they do this really weird, um, cross dissolve between, uh, Daryl Revick and these two guys. And to me, it seemed like he was manipulating and controlling them. Like that was yeah, a that's, visual that's, way of showing that, that he was connected to him. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess it could also be, like, I didn't think about it this way, but I, I was reading online and, and some people are like, well, no, he's, you know, he's just telling, he's just giving them orders. And I was like, well, I, I guess it could be that way. But if you were a scanner, it doesn't seem like in this movie, it doesn't seem like the scanners use guns. No, you know they, I mean? I mean, they don't. They don't need to. They don't need to. No. Yeah, and they're able to. They're able to defeat everybody that has a gun against them. Almost except. Well, I mean, no, that's not true either. But well, I mean, yeah, most our most. heroes are. But <laughs> but in any case, you know, he he he, you know, is told uh, you know, he's warned about Revic by this Benjamin dying Benjamin Pierce, and he's also given the name of Kim Obrist that he needs to seek out. And then there's a scene where uh, it's kind of odd where Cameron checks into a hotel room, goes in, and it's almost like treated like he's a heroin addict or something. You know, the voices are starting to uh, kick up in his head, and you see him give himself this injection, and it's kind of pathetic, you know, and then he just passes out. I do like that, though. That, it kind of reminds you that, you know, like he needs that drug in, in order to cope. I, I like that scene. You know, I mean, it's, it's, a, brief, it's, a, it's a brief little moment, but it just, it just reminds you that, like, he's normal now. Because of this drug. I, yeah, I forgot it was actually even in there until I was watching it the most recent time. When I see these scenes in the movie, it just reminds me how bad fucking Stephen Lack is. How, how much he's lacking. Like, even even when he meets up, uh, he finally meets up with Jennifer O'Neill. She gets, like, first fucking billing, and we don't even run into her until, like, fucking almost 40 minutes into the movie. Yeah. And she's a member of this, uh, I guess, good scanner cult. Or scanner group, or whatever. I, I want to say cult because they get together and um, <laughs> have little uh, little seances, and they they stand yeah. together. They pull their they pull their powers together, their resources together. And um, what were they trying to scan though in that group? They don't really say that in the movie. It's more or less again. It kind of uh, seems to uh, draw back on stereo, where they, it's more just that together they're kind of this just uh, gestalt or whatever you know that. Uh, Together they're stronger, and it's more just the communal experience of them all scanning together, or just or sort of linking minds. I think it seems like they had a purpose for the why they were in a circle, though. But you I don't... just got to get. I mean, it's it's one of the kind of more laughable scenes. I just think it's more of like a very seventies idea, kind of like a group encounter therapy, like you see in the Howling. Um, and you keep thinking you're going to see like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm, the movie's going to tell me why they're doing this in just a second. They're going to find out some piece of information about something. And then these assassins come in in a very horrific fashion, just murder these people um, while they're all connected to each other. Yeah, very brutal. Yeah, I thought this. I thought this was one of the most effective scenes in the film. Well, I mean, it, you know, it, it is funny, you know, for the clandestine meeting, uh, they left the door unlocked because these guys were able to just walk right into this place, you know, through an unlocked door. Uh, dude, it didn't seem like, but, I mean, even if they locked the door, it didn't seem like it would matter. I mean, because it took... Well, no, but I mean, it's just kind of funny that it is, it, that they don't even have to break the glass or anything. It's just like, oh, it's unlocked, you know, they just walk right in, but... Um, would, would you say in the scene that they they have pyrokinesis powers as well? I mean, because these mysterious fires suddenly, uh, you know, uh, ignite. For whatever reason, it seems like if you get scanners near electricity, they just blow shit up. Okay, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know why. Later scene, I, I could accept that. But they just they cause things to melt. That that is where I got that. Um, but I mean, that could just be me reading into that because of what you have later in the movie. I don't know, dude. 
Cronenberg just def- definitely breaks his rules. I mean, well, again, it could just be due to you know the pressure conditions of making this thing. But uh, I, yeah, I mean, my first couple of views is I just took it that they had like pyrokinesis as well, and that's why these people were uh, these fires are starting. I mean, look, let's just call it what it is. He was writing the scripts as he was going, and he probably was like, "Hey, you know what? This would be really cool." And yeah. he's right. It is fucking really cool. Does it make really sense with what he's told us in the story? No. I have encountered that in writing, too, where it's like, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but we need some action here, and if we throw this in, it's going to be cool, and it you know, keeps it going. Not to come up with a justification for it later, but you know, we need to throw this in right now, and sometimes that happens. Yeah, you know, you, you get to the point where it's just like, you know, even Steven Spielberg is like, you know, I, I need this T-Rex to enter the end of... Uh, enter this building at the end of the Jurassic Park movie here and um, I need my characters not to notice it um, even though earlier they were noticing it uh, when uh, water was rippling in a cup <laughs> uh, now I'm not going to notice it when it enters in a fucking building wait how did the fucking T-Rex get inside the building well at that point I, by that point I would say the characters were in shock from all they've gone through <laughs> yeah at least the whatever. kids were those kids, those kids had years of therapy ahead of them <laughs> look it doesn't matter it's it's a cool scene um, and it, it it just happens because it enters the frame, and the frame is what you see. So I, I'll, I'll go with it. It's that that is a filmmaking cheat. But one thing you did point out is that yeah, these guys do uh, you know start uh, uh, loading their guns into into these scanners while they're all connected together. So there is the interesting line that I really didn't again pick up on until this last viewing, where Kim says, uh, "Now I know what it feels like to die," or something like that. There, there are three people that get murdered before anybody in the circle even moves. Your friends are dying in the room, and you're not even aware. So in any case, uh, Kim, Cameron, and a couple of other scanners escape and get into a uh, you know a very uh, 70s like VW van type of thing, and they're trying to get away. And uh, these agents are after them, and it gets almost kind of like a drive-by shooting. Like you see these side windows open up on this other vehicle, and they just again unload into them. More scanners die. Their their uh, their little VW busting crashes into a record store uh, on its side. Uh, you know, everyone else is dead. They they manage to get away. You see immediately. You see like looters come into this record store. I even like the little uh, the village people uh, promo in, in in one of the shots when uh, <laughs> they're dollying over from the wreck. You see this the village people. It's like front and center. Yeah, I don't, I've tried to make out who's there. <laughs> you see, a, you see a prominent sign for the Atlanta rhythm section, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I always uh, you know I always think, well, that stuff exists in the world of this movie, you know. But I mean, because you, I mean, you have to realize, I have to think this movie is taking place in some kind of alternate earth anyway, where there's been all these weird drugs that don't exist and stuff. But um, yeah, it's all alternate eighties. Yeah, I mean, the IMDb talks about it. it was a, apparently I, there's a prominent sign for um, Robert Stigwood organization, and they said it was already like defunct by the time the movie came out. But uh, he was this uh, guy that produced Grease and whatnot. I think Saturday Night Fever as well. Oh my god! Yeah, was- but he offered up some money, I guess, to get that ad in there. It's the second action scene in the movie that really gets you elevated and gets you pumped. It, you know, it, it's staged like Cronenberg does. You know, it's not like when I say action, it's not like an action film like Michael Bay does. It's staged like Cronenberg does. He's, you know, he, he lingers on shots. He lingers on the violence, um, you know, just like Sam Peck and Paul or other directors like that before him. I really like that. He, I mean, he even opens um, when you were talking about like um, they're shooting the uh, shotguns into the bus. Like they open up some kind of slats and then they bring the shotguns out. You get a good long pause of that. And then our characters react at like how all of that stage is very Peck and Paul esque. Yeah. I mean, you even get like a slow-mo, like um, he he does a slow-mo on the squid when it hits the uh, random guy that needs to die in the bus. I don't even know who that character was because he's in the movie. There's a Tony that dies. I know she's like concerned about this Tony. (laughs) 
<laughs> some yeah, some random dude. It's just like you guys are just scanner bait. It doesn't matter. You're just you random scanners. You know you're all gonna die. But in any case, they're trying to escape this record store, and they seem to go down into like a sub level. And uh, there's some assassin guy after them. You know, presumably out of that vehicle. You know, another guy with a yes. shotgun. And uh, there's kind of cool scene where you know he pumps the shotgun. You hear he's about to. Uh, you know, blow them away, and and this time is is it Veil? Vale? I guess it's Cameron that stops him, right? Yeah, or together, or do they both kind of work on him together? Uh, yeah, I guess they, I guess they both work on him together. But I mean, I don't know. It's it seemed like it was him because he was trying to make a a statement because you know she kept saying like you don't know how powerful Revic is at that point, and well, we can't resist Revic or anybody else because you know they just killed all of us. So I, I do think it was it was trying it was it was Cameron at that moment trying to you know prove himself to her that you know he yeah and he does he does capable. keep this guy in his psychic hold for quite a while and she even asks like why are you doing this or whatever and he's like because he can tell us something and finally you know he causes the guy to pull from his pocket this little glass vial that's got some mysterious uh, you know drug inside of it and some mysterious logo it's that biocarbon whatever place yeah biocarbon amalgamate. Which you I actually wrote. If you're, it gonna, if you're gonna have that. I think amalgamated biocarbon sounds better. But. Yeah, that does sound better. Well, maybe it's not technically uh, accurate. I don't know. I don't know, but it's, uh, it's more alphabetical too. A B. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just come on. Think of, think of what you could do to your logo here. I mean, just from graphic design standpoints, we should go this way. Oh my anyway, goodness! And there's this classic scene where he, you know, Cameron's ready to come in from the cold, and he calls Doctor Ruth, who is for some reason in a British tea room, again slumped down in a chair, or there's a phone right next to him. Like a British butler comes over, offers him tea, and tells him there's a telephone call for him. You yeah, know, he I don't know why he's in that room. This. I'm assuming one of the locations they had was a hotel. You know, the lobby that you see Cameron check in. I was thinking to myself that might be that might have been like the actual tea room or lounge or whatever in this hotel in Montreal or whatever. And probably was and they just like hey you know what uh patrick mcgowan why don't you just come down real quick uh we're just gonna shoot you right here yeah and i don't know like where the heck it's supposed to be if that's like i say the, the concept lounge or whatever the hell well no no it's <laughs> it's, it's obviously out somebody outside outside of concept because he's like hey uh give me 10 minutes i'll be there <laughs> he's like uh, he well, needs- it's a sprawling campus maybe take some time <laughs> yeah he, he he needs some time to get somewhere before he before he comes in and gets briefed and everything he actually goes and he he sees where the uh, Daryl Revick's supposed to be at that bio. What's it called again? <laughs> Biocarbon amalgamate. They show up there, and the minute they do, for some reason, uh, Mark Irwin and David Cronenberg decide to go with this real hazy look all over the film. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, if it, I wondered about that too. I, I didn't know if it was supposed to be some sort of dry ice inside the place or what the idea of that was. Yeah, I don't know if they were they trying to convey it like a gas was like you know. Because they were in well, suits. Well, you know, he he is wearing what they, like a clean room suit, you know, yeah. like you would if you were going into outside of Intel or one of those uh, microchip corporations, you know. Uh, Cameron again, they don't, you know, you have to assume he, he you know, uh, mind controlled these people or what. He somehow is commandeered, uh, you know, this uh, clean suit, and he's made his way uh, inside this lab. Uh, and uh, you do see, as he says, Daryl Revick up in this control room with like a clipboard, like looking over things. Oh, okay, this is good. Everything looks good here, and. Uh, Cameron makes his way into this computer uh, room, you know, and uses a very uh, 70s-looking uh, green screen computer. And I question, you know, how does he even know what to type into this computer? It's a little, uh, you know, odd to me. I, dude, I didn't even think about that. I just kept thinking about, like, why is this so hazy? Why did they smear Vaseline on the lens when they shot this? They're making a I, chemical I, 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 that's I, I, a liquid. It is just a cinematography choice, but I, like I said, I, unless I took it to be that it was, like, you know, it was supposed to be sort of some sort of cold uh, 
conditions or whatever. Yeah, it was. It's, it's, it's weird. I don't understand it. It's bizarre. I, it I, is, and, and no other scene in the it. film looks like that either. Yeah, I, it's, I, I really, I really hate it. The movie. It just, it, it, it really looks bad. I, I dislike it's more, it. It's more noticeable on the DVD. Like I hadn't picked up on that as much watching years ago on tape and whatnot. It's like uh, all but, of a sudden you just turn to like Superman the movie. It's like. <laughs> This lab is on Krypton. But in any case, uh, he goes to this uh, old school computer, and somehow he's, he, he uh, is made aware of, of something called the Wright program. And he see, you know, he's not able to get into it. He doesn't have access to this mysterious Wright program. And that's why he's got to go to uh, uh, ComSec. But meanwhile, what we have not uh, touched on is a couple of times, uh, I think somewhere around here and earlier in the film we skipped over, you do see that uh, this uh, – the contact agent Keller is, is secretly meeting with Revic at this uh, subway terminal. Oh, you know what? I'm glad you brought that up. There is a really weird uh, dolly shot. The entire time they've had Michael Ironside's face hidden. Like, we didn't know he was talking to Revic. And then the second time he meets him, like, they do this dolly shot to reveal him. Yeah, well, I think earlier on you're not supposed to quite know who he's talking to. But, dude, that is clearly we've heard Michael Ironside speak, and we can <laughs> we can hear his yeah, voice. Yeah, not that big of a secret. Uh, yeah, like, they don't disguise his voice at all. Like, I, there must have been something in the script where, like, maybe he was on the phone, or there must have been something here that got left out or got cut out of post. Like, maybe they were going to do something to his voice to make it different. It, something here happened, because this dolly shot just comes out of nowhere to reveal Michael Ironside, and it's just kind of like... Oh yeah, no shit. It's just I don't know. It, in any, it's a weird directing choice. You know what I mean? It's 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 ill timed. It seems like the director was like, "Oh, I got the audience," and it's like, "No, you don't, dude." Yeah, but you know, the first time he, uh, Keller just tells him, you know, that, that Ruth has got a scanner working for him, but don't worry, you know, he's very weak. You know, basically, he's no threat to us. But this time, you know, he's he's telling him that uh, the the veil, the scanner is coming in. You know. He says he has an informant, you know, that, that I guess Kim, had, you know, or they were using the excuse that uh, she, you know, knew or Revic or had information about him. You know, he's lying. They, they, this Keller's worried about what, whatever, you know, this veil has on them or whatever, you know. And so, you know, he's like, he's going to talk to Ruth. You know, I won't be able to stop that. You know, and, he, you know, if, if Dr. Ruth finds anything, I'll kill him, you know. And you do see that, that Keller's taking it back, you know, really, you know, I thought you didn't want. And then, you know, he emphatically says, kill him, really. He's definitely drawing a line right here. Um, yeah. Like, he can't find out about this information. This is beyond him and not part of his plan. And it also gives, it lets you know, too, like, before, like, you know, he did not want him dead. Of course, this is all setting up to the end. Yeah, and it is interesting that apparently up to this point, uh, Revic has hesitated going that far. And it's also interesting, too, that Revic does not, does not give a shit if Keller's found out at all. He's like, you know, if your cover gets blown and they know... That's your problem. I hope you interview or interrogate, um, you know, the informant first. Yeah, he all but tells about it, supposedly. <laughs> Michael Ironside is a great dick. Like, I just, I love it. Yeah, him. he's got a, I'm surprised he hasn't done even more, like, animation of voiceover. He's, the guy's got a fantastic voice. But, um. Oh, yeah, he sure does. You can say, I mean, having watched that interview with him, I mean, you can tell looking at you know, looking at it again within that conscience, you can tell he is really a hungry actor at this point. You know, I, I don't mean like starving for wages or but that he's really his hunger to work and prove himself on screen. You know, so he really is uh, not a little over the top, but he's making some interesting choices. And really, you know, he's kind of a star turn from, you know, he's, he's and he seems aware of it. Hey, when he, dude, he said, he said in the, in the behind the scenes that this role really just kind of came out. He was a day player. He was supposed to be there for that, that one scene in the eight millimeter film where he's talking about drilling the hole in his head. And that role expanded just because Cronenberg liked what he was doing. Uh, like, what was this, like, what was this movie before? Like, I mean, exactly. Uh, that's, 
I mean, it's got to be better for it because every scene that Michael Ironside in is is amazing. And like when he's not on screen, he is really mis- it's the same thing for Patrick McGruin. Um, and even Jennifer O'Neill, like, I mean, she's, she's really good in this. And even the guy that plays, uh, I'm not familiar with the actor that plays Keller, but I really dug him in this film as well. His name is Lawrence Dane. Yeah. I'm not familiar with his work, but I, 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 I could have like sworn him. that he was a, um, he was a, a villain in the original Battlestar Galactica, but I, I could be wrong. I have no idea. I haven't watched I don't know how familiar you are with that original show. Are you any, not, uh, not very familiar at all, man. Okay. Well, no. At toward the end of it, when they, I think they started to realize that they, the endless uh, use of the Cylons was getting old. They brought in uh, this other alien race who were a little bit like Klingons, and there were like three of them. And I could have sworn that he was like the leader of them, but I could be wrong. But in any case, the only thing that I could imagine is that either Daryl Revick was would have been cast in by you know a different excuse me a different actor would have been cast as Daryl Revick, or else Keller was the main villain in the original version. I, I don't know. Yeah, I think that was the original plan. It was that Keller was going to be more of a villain, which I don't know if he was supposed to be a, a Scanner villain originally or what. But but uh, Cameron very, hush, hush and Cameron are choppered into the Consec headquarters, and they're split up. Uh, Cam is going to meet with uh, Doctor Ruth, and uh, Kim is going to be interrogated by Keller. So, what what did you think of Patrick McGowan's uh, eventual demise? I remember even as a kid, the first time I saw this as a teenager, it kind of surprised me by how abrupt it was. But I want to get to that, because this is, this is where the movie, like, there's, it gets very heavy on exposition. Well, no, this is where it also gets confusing. I will say, I absolutely love his monologue up to that device, too. But go ahead. You get these moments inside his, his head, where he just gets VO, where he's well, just well, like... Well, we've got to get to that. First, he's talking to Cameron, and Cameron unloads you know, this information well, that he's... Well, found, hopefully, so. people have, have, have seen the, the movie. We don't have to go through it scene well, by scene. Well, I, I always like to think there's some, you know, first time uh, that we're going to motivate people to want to watch you know, from <laughs> all right, fair enough. They have this session together, uh, you know, where he welcomes Cameron back, and uh, he, he tells they oh they're given a shot of ephemeral both when they when they arrive, but uh, uh, Doctor Reed reveals oh it was just like you know it was just a um, placebo or whatever you know, and it's interesting you know you know that's a gesture of trust is why he did it, and in this line you know I have nothing to hide, nothing at all to hide. So then you know not even the right program you know then he kind of you know pleads innocent on that or pretends not to know what it is or active. Perhaps he truly doesn't, you know. So um, Cameron tells him he's gone to this biocarbon amalgamate, and they're, they're, you know, that they're, uh, there's something called the right program, and they're, they're mass manufacturing ephemeral. So then Dr. Ruth admits him that he actually founded this, uh, this biocarbon amalgamate, but, you know, he's been out of touch with it for years. He's not even quite sure what they do anymore. And then uh, Cameron tells him that, you know, not only is it manufacturing ephemeral, but he thinks it's being run by Dow Revick, you know, and, and Dr. Ruth can't believe that. He's going to have to go into the computer and access this right program that, you know, I, I do not have concept computer clearance that the camera's going to have to do it himself. And, he, you know, how am I going to do that? And, you know, he's this is where scan the computer. Yeah, this is where the movie gets, gets goes into not one of one of many where he really starts to get a bizarre territory where he says, you know, that you have a nervous system. So does the computer. And, you know, you can scan the computer as you would another human being. Which makes sense. I buy that. You know, a nervous system for, you know, uh, a kind of nervous system. I get it. Yeah. Makes sense. Whatever. Mm, I still think we're a couple decades away from that, but... Uh. Whatever. Let's just go with it. You know, it, it didn't say a brain or an organ or anything like that. He said a nervous system, you know. It's kind of, you know, ones and zeros. They got to get where they got to go, man. Come on. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting concept. Uh, but anyway, for that, we immediately cut to uh, Kim's interrogation, which doesn't go as well. It's very philosophical and metaphorical. Uh, no, Kim's uh, Kim's doesn't go well, but I mean she's she's able to handle it because she's got her scanner powers. But Keller, uh, she doesn't she didn't kill Keller though. 
No, but he pulls the gun on her and fully intends to uh, do away with her after he, after he sneakily switches off all the uh, security cameras. So. But yeah, I mean, if you're going to kill an informant, dude, you don't want <laughs> video footage. I mean, then you got to go erase the video fucking footage, dude. Come on. But in any case, he sounds the alarm, you know, scatters, find him and kill them. And then, <laughs> this is where... Uh, Magoo has his uh, odd uh, monologue. Uh, some have even described it, I see, as a nervous breakdown. Yeah. Okay, this is this is what I'm going to get to. This is what I think is is interesting in this scene. He, he, he figures out what's going on. He has this moment where he is obviously not speaking, and we are getting voiceover. Is that to imply that he's a scanner? That's what I wondered uh, when I watched this again last year on uh, Turner Classic Movies, because it's the only context where you get a voiceover that's not when someone's directly being scanned. Yeah, that's what I wondered. Is he been getting high off his own supply, you know, because we do find out uh, that he is the creator of this ephemeral. Was, like, he using it at some point to test on himself? Because, I mean, clearly, I mean, you know later that uh, Cameron and uh, Revick are both his children. And he was testing on his wife. So obviously, like, yeah, maybe he was testing on himself and he's got some kind of. Yeah, I mean, he I mean, he definitely you could tell. I mean, he definitely is projecting these. uh, He's at least projecting these thoughts to Cameron. At least, you know, he wants Cameron to read these thoughts of his, it seems, in this scene. Because even, you know, dramatically touches his hand to his forehead and stuff. It is like he's sending these thoughts out. Yeah, exactly, right? And he's like, he keeps going like, access the past, access the yeah, past. Yeah, that's confusing. Maybe the computer is more important because, uh, you know, uh, Cam, I guess, is concerned about what's happening to Kim, you know, and, uh, you know, no, the computer is more important to access the right program. Yeah, it was, it, yeah, but I, I, you know, I question, too, is he fully aware of what the right program is? It seems like it's, he it, could interpret it to me, too, that, like, it's something he's just fully aware of that he's kind of denied or put in the back of his mind and now it's coming forward. Cause why, why is it the past? I don't get that unless it's because he's thinking about what he himself did that's well, similar I, to it. Or, yeah, I think he's kind of like slowly realizing like they're shipping out ephemeral. What possible reason could be they, you know, they're doing for that? And then he's like, access the past. And then he starts thinking about what he did in the past with, you know, he gave this drug to pregnant women and they all had scanner babies and these scanner babies grew up and they had problems in life. And now he's realizing that they're shipping out the scanner drug to make an army of scanner babies. They're going to grow up and be scanner super beans or i don't i don't really know what their plan is they don't really go into it in the movie whatever it's it's bond villain shit. well Rebecca kind of he, he outlines his vision for it no no his vision is like i want to take over the world with scanners like he doesn't yeah, have like he's a he's expecting he's expecting this new generation that comes from this i mean look you're getting ahead of ourselves but he's expecting this new generation that's born from the right program to be you know as strong or as them or that they can lead I mean, that well, he and Cam can lead these guys, these new generations. That's the idea of that. He doesn't go into details of like, this is how I'm going to take the world over, and um, am I going to kill humans? Am I going to keep them as cattle? Like, uh, he doesn't go into any of that. He's just like, yeah, I'm going to take over the world. Why? Uh, you know, that's what powerful people do that read minds. We take yeah, over I mean, the world. It does get a little, uh, little uh, cliched or comic bookish, or have you at that point. But uh, again, ahead of so ourselves. Fun. Now, this next scene, I almost want to kind of break it down like a Shakespearean text. Uh, wow! Uh, the very next thing is Nguyen has this bizarre monologue. It's actually spoken aloud. I didn't realize the first few times I saw that his lips are actually moving. This is not like we're hearing his thoughts. This is him actually talking to himself out loud. Oh yes. Now, I have it in front of you. Uh, can I read it, or, or do we not need to go? Do oh my gosh! You got to read this. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Mustn't happen again. It's always been there, inside me, lurking away, sucking out my joy and rotting my successes. Then this Cameron, oh, Cameron, I have a way with you, Cameron. Mustn't happen again. Ripe. Ripe indeed. The ripe program must be stopped. Isn't the same thing, you understand? No, not the same thing at all. It's different. 
first time was an accident, fortunate for some, unfortunate for others. The right program is cold and cruel, very, very cold and very cruel. And then he's, he's blown, he's, he's basically shot to death by Keller. You, you get, sometimes you, do, you just get shot in the back of the head when you're, when you're holding your hands. Which he seems to know is happening and he'd be accepting in the moment that this is the uh, consequence. He's a bad person. He knows. He does kind of seem a little clairvoyant um, in this moment here. And he, he, he seems like yeah. a scanner. Or, it is how it's portrayed on screen. Like, otherwise, like, I, I don't know why you made any of these. On VHS years ago. I thought you were, the whole thing you were hearing is his thoughts during that. I thought, that's why I thought, again, it led me to that. Is he a scanner? Well, I mean, he's either a scanner or he's just going batshit insane for... Yeah, well, some people I, I see have no interpreted it just as bad. Um, I, I, I guess the, the, the next... Um, well, okay, I was going to say the next scene is probably like when they hack into the, the phone system. Well, no, first is that there's the, they have to confront the security guards. Yeah, I was going to say I, we should probably talk about the security. That is really, really well done. They meet security guards in the hallways. Um, like like you do when you're trying to escape, of course, from an evil leer. Um, and when they run across them, we're mostly just focused on Jennifer O'Neill's character in this scene. But you see that they're both missing with two different security guards. But Jennifer O'Neill uh, does this really, really brilliant thing. It's the first time we actually see like what a scanner can do outside of blow your head up or kill somebody or push them or something like that where this, the security guard actually sees his mother and starts talking to him. And actually, there's even, like, a weird, like, cryptic mo- character moment that th- this, this actor has for, like, a brief second where he's like, Mama, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that to you. And it's just like, wait, what? hold up, buddy. What are you talking about? What did you do to your mom? Yeah, what does he say? I didn't mean to hurt her. Or there was so much blood or so Yeah, weird. Yeah, there is the real weird line. Oh, no, there's so much blood. That That's the other guy. That, that That's oh, also okay. very cryptic that uh, <laughs> Cameron was missing have, with. Uh, serious trauma in their past, apparently. <laughs> yeah. But it, it is, it's just like these little, it's these little character moments that you just, you get in the in the movie. And it's like, again, it's like a not even a minute scene. In but the it's, movie. It is, it's pure Cronenberg too. It's not something you would see, and I don't think another filmmaker's work. It's not. It's not an action-packed moment, but it's it's really well done. I mean, it's it's really good. Cause, I mean, I kept waiting for like, okay, are they going to make the cops kill themselves or something? And it's like, no, they just made them cry. But there's also that weird dissolve where Jennifer O'Neill dissolved in this old lady that's wearing her same outfit. That that was that was his mama, dude. He was seeing his mama right there. But uh, in any case, they're able to get yeah, away from these guys, and you know, unseen in the negative space. Uh, next thing, they've somehow hotwired commandeered a car, which you have to you know assume they can kind of you know, shown in this next scene control machines and stuff. So it's not really shown. But next thing, they've stolen a car and they pull up at this gas station, and uh, he gets into a phone booth. Uh, what? Because, what is that? <laughs> because, as they explain, uh, the computers are linked to a telephone network, and so he has to access it through the phone line. Wait, yeah, wait, kids are used what? to using these called telephone booths before a cell phone. Oh, anyways, we early internet. We cut to uh, Keller in the computer lab, and there's one of the greatest nerd intimidation scenes outside of a Revenge of the Nerds movie. Uh, <laughs> where he, <laughs> I mean, this guy—he gives ogre a run for his money here in this scene. But yeah, he does. He totally brings out uh, a gun and is just like threatening this nerd who is wearing the thickest goddamn glasses ever. Well, I, I, actually, the glasses are not really that thick. It's the frames are so thick. 
you know, he, he basically is, is he wants to find a way to to hurt him, or he, you know, he knows that that veil is inside the system, and he wants a way to shut it down and shut him down. And so the the programmer guy is confused, hurt him. I don't understand you. And he's telling him he doesn't have the authorization to completely, you know, blow up or wipe the computers. You know, so he th- puts the gun right in his face. This is your authorization. Yeah, it's a little over the top. I mean, you know, you know why Keller's trying to do this, though. You know, it's like, look, I got to kill this guy and I got to kill the chick. Otherwise, you know, these people at Comsec are going to find out about me. The whole operation's gone. Yeah, and basically he has to he has to punch in this self destruct code that you know he's supposed to have uh, you know authorization from the CEO or whatever to do that's going to wipe their whole system. Yeah, and of course, like one of the nerds over in the far corner is like, "No, man, look, it's going to be super quiet. You're not going to hear any explosions or anything." And he's like, well, nobody's ever turned off a scanner before. Yeah. <laughs> Keller's like, you know, he, he seems worried, but he just stands like maybe five feet away from the computer. It's like, man, you should have gotten out of the fucking computer room. Yeah, no, he still feels like he's in control of the situation. Run away, dude, run away. Because that explosion in the computer room is glorious. That is, uh, that's a real sight to behold. Yeah, I didn't realize until this most recent viewing that one of the dudes survived. I thought everybody, you know, dies in that suit. <laughs> yeah, that one, that one dude is just like fucking shocked as shit in the corner. Like, man, yeah, I didn't I say anything to anybody. Instant. Yeah, so anyway, this computer lab gets blown to Kingdom Come, and even the phone uh, booth, the whole phone, the receiver starts to sizzle and oh yeah, and then. It, you know, it causes it's very it's a very the birds inspired scene. You know, where you see these sparks uh, on the uh, electric line, and then Ooh, you know that back. wire comes down. You know, hits some curse. There's a guy pumping gas, and a you know a ridiculous uh, this is one cheesy '80s. Oh shit! You know, he's got to get out of the way, and then there's a huge explosion. <laughs> More, you know, or mayhem and damage caused by Cameron. D- being disconnected because he's a scanner, like, not only does he, like, f- you know, fuck the circuits up. And there were some really cool shots, too. Like, in that section where Cronenberg um, must have gotten, like, some crazy macro lens and, like, uh, blown up some transistors. Like, made some circuit actual... Circuit boards or whatever, yeah. Yeah, made some actual, like, transistors, circuit boards and microchips, like... Uh, like big versions of them and did, did like dolly shots of them. You can actually see in the computer yeah. and they're catching fire. Those, those are really interesting. You know, he puts it down to that small of a detail and then he brings it outside into the real world where you have like the telephone line blowing up and the telephone itself is like fucking melting. Yeah. Very briefly too. There's almost like a Douglas Trumbull slit scan type of effect too. Only for like a couple of seconds. Oh, you you know you're right. Yeah, you know it's it's um, all of this stuff in here. Um, man, I I think this this sequence is is really really well done. And like when you say scanners, like outside of like the head exploding and um, you know the end scene, th- this is the the third scene I think of is the computer scene. Yeah, and, and I mean it is very again. You know his ideas were very ahead of their time. You know again this movie was released in eighty one, and you know the idea of. Uh, human beings interfacing with machines and stuff, you know, you, yeah. you know, it's certainly some fiction had been written along these lines, but this was even before, uh, you know, William Gibson's Neuromancer and some of these books. And, it, you know, it really it was something you didn't see at the time. And it, it, you know, was very different at this, at this point in the movie, we're, we're pretty much wrapped up. Um, we're, we're getting our final confrontation of the movie. But first, they where do Kim and Cameron escape to? But a doctor's office. Well, okay. You, you, you want, you want to touch on that? We get a little backstory there. Well, I mean, we have to touch on this scene. It's kind of, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a little odd, but it is important. Well, I mean, is it important? I mean, uh, I mean it is. I mean, because, I mean, well, it's exposition-wise, at least, because, you know, one of the, you know, reviews in this bug have says, you know, at this point, it's very unclear what's happening. So, like, it's like you're almost grateful for when they finally do put the pieces together for you. 
Well, the only information that you're actually given here is that uh, they've connected that the drugs that are being shipped out are actually going to doctors' office that are prescribing them to pregnant women. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, it's you know, it's Stephen Lacks acting, but they go into a doctor's office and and Kim waits in the waiting room. This is an important scene, dude, and. Uh, uh, you know, she's sitting there. She makes some small talk with this expectant mother that's sitting there. You see, you know, the, you even see the lady like rub her stomach. You know, she's pregnant, and then suddenly you hear the uh, you hear the main theme, and it's kind of cool because it's like a baby version of the theme, almost like uh, played on a xylophone or something. And uh, Kim is being scanned, and she gets a nosebleed, and she can't, you know, figure out what's happening. Or whatever. Meanwhile, uh, Cam barges his way into this doctor's office. This guy, Larry Seawell, is in the middle of this old man's physical, you know, and, and uh, you know, kind of rudely interrupts his doctor and displays that little vial to him, you know, that's of ephemeral. So, kind of cut back to him finding Kim. You know, you assume he somehow is pieced together that uh, this ephemeral is being uh, distributed to doctors all over North America. In any case, he finds Kim. Her nose is bleeding. You know, she was scanned by who? You know, the woman in the office, like, no, her, her fetus. You know, this her unborn child scanning. It's kind of an eerie, creepy uh, scene. And that does display that, you know, like they say, the power of what is going, even with the special features, says, you know, that this really emphasizes the scale of this. I, but in any case, you know, as soon as they, as soon as they get outside, he, you know, oh, no, while they're staying there, you know, a dart comes through the window, like a tranquilizer, it hits uh, Kim. You know, he drags her out, and the next thing, uh, there's Daryl Revick, you know, and then he shoots uh, Kim. I, I I like I like pieces of the the baby scanning a Jennifer O'Neill her her character I I like that some of that's good it just feels really rushed man and it's just an exposition dump it's just a scene that needs to exist in the movie just to let the audience know something I'm I'm not I'm not really thrilled about this I mean to be honest with you I f- I feel like this is is probably the one of the laziest scenes in the entire movie it. it it, it, it does feel like we're kind of rushing to the end. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is weak. I think it's probably just, a, you know, again, due to budgetary and time limitations. Right? Exactly. But, I mean, they, <laughs> the You're right. You're totally right. I mean, that stuff that. Is, is laughable. You know, it's almost hilarious. Uh, the old man, uh, shirtless old man in the middle of his physical. But um, like I guess I, 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 again, more appreciate many times Howard Shore's score, especially in that scene and how it's integrated so well into the content, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. No, no. I, I totally you know, agree. You with know that. that that little piece, you know that little piece or that little version of the theme was written just for that. You know, and it, it worked so well. But you're right. They 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 get drugged. They get brought to Revic. Uh, this is a, this is an interesting scene. What did you think of the the final? <laughs> telepathy battle here at the end. Oh, I, I've always liked this whole scene. Yeah, this is one of my favorite scenes of the movie, man. I mean, again, for Stephen Lack, some of, some of his uh, delivery of some of these lines, because, uh, you know, at first they have a very dialogue and exposition-heavy exchange where you finally figure out kind of what is uh, Dow Revick up to, you know, and Cam right away throws in his face, you know, that he murdered Dr. Ruth, you know, we shouldn't mourn the good doctor's death, you should celebrate it with me. He, he reveals that... Uh, Again, that, that Dr. Ruth is actually their father, that they're brothers, and uh, that this ephemeral was a, an experimental drug that was marketed to pregnant women, you know, decades before. He shows them an old Life magazine that has an ad for it. Their father sold the company to this uh, concept, and then, you know, he's, he, you know, he, you don't really understand. He, you know, he says that uh, Cam's been monitored every day of his life, allowed to live like garbage, scum. He knew where you were, but he wasn't, you know, it wasn't until he needed you that he reached down and hauled you out of the slime. Which I'm glad they uh, they addressed that in, in in that scene because otherwise I was like, wait a minute, how did how did how did these guys find Cameron in the first place? Um, that was a nice touch. I really I did I I like that that line that they threw in there. 
I I really 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 dig everything in this. I, I like I like how it starts. You know, you find out that these two guys are brothers. I like how they're on opposite sides, and we already know that they're going to be on opposite sides based off of what we've seen in the movie already. We know where they're coming from. We know their political ideals, what they're you know what they think of scanners in the world and where they fit in. Man, I mean, you know these guys are going to fight. It, it's what the whole movie's about. You know, it, the whole movie came to this moment. It is weird, though, that David Cronenberg just drops a Empire Strikes Back like, you know, I'm your father. Like, we're all connected. Reference at the end of this movie, he just drops a bombshell on you. Plot-wise, story-wise, here it is. We're all connected. It's This is really bizarre how this works out. And not only that, but, like, Patrick McGowan's char- character, he's dead. Dr. Ruth is gone. Like, he, he never, there, there's, no, there's never a moment, you know, typical Cronenberg style. He doesn't like the sappy, the sappy moments in any of his films ever. I, I don't know, man. What did you think of this? Well, I mean, it's not exactly Oedipal, but, I mean, you have the father murdering, or, or the son, excuse me, murdering the father. You know, that's kind of significant. Uh, you know, Ruth Very represents the past. Uh, you know, he's trying to put, you know, get that out of the way. That was kind of the, you know, maybe, like I say, you see, it seems to imply that he did at some level care for, uh, Revick himself even somehow cared for Dr. Ruth a bit, you know, if he left him alive up to this point, because apparently he had told Keller not to interfere with him up to the point, because even Keller is taking it back when he, as I said earlier, when he suggested actually killing him. Yeah. Like, it seems like that was a line he was unwilling to cross up to this point in the movie or, you know, in, in the story. Yeah, and he, and he wants him to join his cause, and then when he he realizes that Cameron rejects his cause and says, "No, I'm not yeah, going to no, join you." No, no, I was you. talking about that. That it implies that Daryl Revick was uh, reluctant to kill Doctor Ruth up until that point, knowing he was his father. Yeah, well, I was, I was talking about both of both of them. Like he's he's yeah. reluctant to to kill either one of them, right? Up until a certain point, but I mean, like even in this scene at the end, like he gives he gives Cameron this moment where I'll give you. A uh, chance to join me, and if you don't, then I'm going to kill you. Uh, he has this line where he says, "Everything you are is going to become me. You're going to be with me, Cameron, no matter what. I'm going to suck you right. dry. I'm going to do this the scanner way. You know, you, you you see a fight where both of them are are bubbling and and being hurt, and it just kind of it ends. You don't really know what happens." And then at the end of the movie, you hear Cameron's voice in Daryl Revick's body. But Daryl Revick has different eyes. He's got Cameron's eyes. He no longer has the scar. The the drill hole scar in his forehead is missing. Did he win? What does this mean? Did did Daryl Revick win? Did Cameron win? I like everybody like I've seen online just automatically assumes that like oh yeah well see Cameron Val just put his consciousness into Revick's body. Is that what happened? It seems kind of I, you know. I remember being confused by it the very first time I saw it, and like you say, that one line does sort of leave uh, room or leave the door open. You know that, that uh, it could just be that uh, it's just a trick, you know, by Daryl Revick or what have you. Uh, I watched this time when I watched it again. I was well, you know, actually just really paying attention to their expressions, and it, it does seem like uh, you know Cameron selflessly, you know, or in almost a Christ-like way, you know, gives up his body and it sacrifices himself, you know, for this for the good cause. Yeah, the fact that you know you see that fire and you see uh, you see you see Dal Revit kind of like you know roar with power you know toward the very end of it like it's almost like it, it, it still you wonder did did Daryl Revit win or it, it's very uh, right up until that point it's still where it's like fifty fifties to you know who won this telekinetic uh, standoff. Yeah, are, are they both in there together? Are there two people? Are Revic and Cameron both in the same body? 
it's not answered at all. <laughs> no. And I guess that's why uh, your friend said, what the F or whatever, literally called or texted you with that. was his immediate response. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After watching the, this movie, like, wait, wait what, what? What the fuck happened here? Who, who won? I'm confused. Did the good guy win? The bad guy win? I'm kind of, because he says, like, I'm Cameron, but yeah, if the bad guy won, wouldn't he say that shit too, just to fool the chick? You yeah, know? I mean, it, it definitely leaves you with a lot of questions. It, yeah, it has a very John Carpenter's The Thing kind of ending. Yeah, I don't. But yeah, again, like that, I don't feel like I don't feel either one of those. It's not like a totally unsatisfying thing. No, no, no. I, I, I yeah, it, it's very satisfying. But I'm I like, mean, to me, it leaves you questions in a good way, where it's you know, it's intellectually stimulating. Yeah, exactly. You like the ambiguity of it. It you know, it stimulates conversation and you know, like why do you think that? Okay, let me go. Let me, let me hear the reasons why. Okay, all right. Okay, cool. All right. Oh, I can tear that one apart. <laughs> You know, it's, that's those those are fun nerd conversations. Yeah, man, you got anything else for this this lovely film here? Well, definitely. Uh, you know, like I say, a lot of elements still aren't clear. You know, I you know even in my first couple of movies, I didn't understand why Revik was murdering all these other scanners. You know, is it only the ones that won't join him? You know, is it the kind of thing where he becomes more powerful, like absorbing their powers? Or you know, now I kind of get it, but it was you know rather unclear to me. Well, I, I do think a lot of things in this movie are not 100% said. I mean, you're just kind of have to, you have to guess on a lot of things. And I will say, like, of all of Cronenberg's movies, this is the one that story-wise, I do, I, you know, like, in script-wise, I do have the most problems with. You know, like, watching it and, like, you know, making sense of it. Because usually Cronenberg is, is so on top of everything that he's he's thought any complaint i could ever make about a film he's already thought ahead of that and anticipated it and he's already got an answer for it somewhere else because he's worked through it in his scripts and you know when he goes and makes the movies he's got to rework it again in in the real world when you're writing a script you know you're 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 putting a story down but it doesn't really have to fit in the real world and then when you go make a movie it's got to fit in the real world you got to make it makes sense in reality and and it's gotta it's gotta be there in a, in a spatial sense you gotta you gotta see it and you gotta show geography and communicate things to your audience and you know, that's harder but yeah, well, uh, I mean, he would probably you know i would guess agree with you i mean even you know that trivia does say Cronenberg once called this the most frustrating film he'd ever made you know rushed through production began without a finished script and had to end within roughly two months. I guess the whole shooting was like 60 days or less, so the financing would qualify as a write-off, tax write-off. At the same time, like, this is still a goddamn good movie. This is way better than most filmmakers' movies. Uh, like, Yeah. You know, I do still feel like, you know, in spite of everything, this is one. It's still one of the more generally recognizable of his movies, or one of the ones that penetrated the most, uh, you know, into the public consciousness, you know. Yeah, I and mean, if you talk to people of a certain age, like, hey, you remember that movie where the dude's head blows up? Where they're gonna, you know, know vaguely or just know this title? Yeah, it's it's ridiculous how you can say, oh yeah, you know the movie with the heads exploding, and everyone's like, oh, oh wait a minute, you talking about scanners? Yeah, what the fuck? How did you know? Well, I guess there's not that many movies with heads exploding, but you know, hey, this is the movie with heads exploding, so you know, it's got that. Well, one thing that we should have mentioned about the Fury is that uh, famously in the end does uh, feature a, a scene where uh, John Cassavetes is also psionically detonated, and they like the effect so much they show it over and over. Uh, it's almost like the style that's been you know parodied on uh, American Dad, Family Guy, where you just keep showing something again and again in slow motion. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, the Fury's got a lot bigger budget though than Scanners. Yeah, um, but I mean, I even you know I even watched I even watched the scene on my friend's phone earlier. Uh, 
you know, today trying to prep for this, and uh, you can clearly see like the rubber head fly up in the air. Look, you know, it's more of a whole body explosion. But I, I don't think it's it's quite as uh, as to me doesn't quite have the same impact as the scanner scene. Yeah, I can get, I, yeah, I get, I can buy that. Well, scan, scanners benefits more from better music. Yeah. You know, that sound does help out a lot. Like, Howard Shore's score is filling in not only for sound effects, but, I mean, like, they do add sound effects, like the shotgun blast going off and and things like that. But without that music, those scenes would just be people shaking their heads, you know, looking off screen. Yeah, I've never never actually tried to watch them on mute, but I'm sure uh, it would certainly not be the same. (laughs) No, it would be be hysterical. Everybody would be laughing at it. It would just be like, it's ridiculous. That music completely elevates all that stuff. Uh, Yeah, that's where absolutely... Enhances all movie. Um, I also, you know, again, it's not only did the movie look better, and I've ever seen what I mean. It sounded a lot better on this DVD, and I, you know, I now also I, for one thing, I didn't pick up or hadn't realized before how much synth there was in this too. I and mean, I knew the main theme, which is kind of like string and you know, uh, brass instruments and stuff, but I didn't realize you know how much synth there is throughout you know the middle of the movie. All right, guys, I think we're at the end of our conversation. Uh, Chris, <laughs> since you're the guest, out of rating from one to ten. 10 being the best, 1 being the worst. What would you rate Scanners, sir? I usually, I usually do the old school three, you know, four-star other system, but, uh, you know, it has some demerits. There's, you know, it's budget and, and some of the other considerations and some of the performances. So I would give it maybe a 7.5 out of 10. 7.5 out of 10. That, 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 that's a good rating. I was, I was thinking, you know, I'm going to give this like a – I was, I was thinking I'd give it like a 6.5 or 7. Yeah, I, I feel – I don't know where I come down on. I give it a seven. I give it a seven. All right. It's David Cronenberg. You give it a seven. You want to watch a good Cronenberg movie. This is easily his most, uh, you know, accessible. What the fuck movie? You know, it's not as accessible as, uh, as dead zone, which we've talked about before, you know, earlier in the podcast, but it is, it is definitely, it's an easy Cronenberg movie to watch. It's not like, you know, the fly or I guess even the fly is kind of easy to watch, but it's not like, um, Videodrome. Yeah, it's not Videodrome. It's not uh, Naked Lunch. It's not uh, In Butterfly. It's not Crash. You know, Th- those are movies that uh, some people watch and they they don't know what to think about them and it blows their minds. But look, if you want to start in Cronenberg, this is a great place to start. Heads explode. Acting is great, minus Stephen Lack. He really fucks up the... Uh, the second part in the the end for the, this movie for me, he, he kind of fucks it up a little bit. And the only reason this movie loses any stars is that, and the the story is a little hard to follow and um, just not a little not clear. It could be better told, and um, you know, just like there's some directing things like Cronenberg um, like choosing to reveal Michael Michael Ironside when he's talking to um, Keller. Like why why do that? I don't. I don't know why that needed to exist. That's a waste of. That's a waste of a camera move. At the end of the day, if those are your complaints from a film, you still had a good film. It's still a seven. You got any closing thoughts there, Mister O'Brien? Just that Cronenberg, you know, interesting guy. Like t- that name alone to me tells me you're going to get something really out there, you know. And I would say I would agree with you that this is entry level Cronenberg. You know, this, this is uh, an accessible story. It's it's a blend yeah. of science fiction, horror, and the, the bit of a spy. Uh, or espionage subgenres, but it's it's also you know among the ones where he completely you know generated the the idea you know, he wrote and directed this you know whereas the Dead Zone it's an adaptation the Fly is a remake. 
but I mean, his earlier stuff is is uh, unique. It's it's pure him. It's as uh, I may be mispronouncing, but it's the French a sui generis or you know sui generis. It's completely from him. It's from his own mind, and you know, a lot of his stuff apparently he claims comes from dreams. He'll get up, you know, middle of the night, have a weird dream, and write down something and use that in a film. Um, but I mean, he, you know, his name is it's it's fairly well known amongst uh, you know cinephiles. I would say uh, his name is uses both a noun and a verb on Rick and Morty. I think that's kind of funny, and they they <laughs> I really Cronenberg this up, Morty, you know, and they uh, they expect you know millennials, young kids, to know who that is, you know, to know who this guy who made these kooky movies in 1981 was. Um, a lot of his earlier stuff is known for the, what they call the body horror subgenre. You know, it's always about mutations oh, yes. and diseases and things taking over the body. Long live the new and flesh. Not, yeah, exactly. It's not. It's you know, certainly I can see where it's not everyone's cup of tea. It's kind of an acquired taste. Uh, you know, no pun intended. He was a literature student, you know, and I will say, uh, you know, there's occasionally some clunky dialogue. Uh, they're all fairly well-written movies. I mean, he, you know, at least at the early point on, he wrote all his own scripts. And these movies are not just, you know, a guy chasing around a woman with a knife. You know, there, there was an intelligence to them. I mean, a lot of people I see find him cold. They find the coldness to, the, to him. And, you know, I, w- I would agree with that to a large extent. Um, it's always a kind of a clinical or scientific approach to, to these phenomena. But, yeah, Scanners, I mean, it has some influences of Fury and whatnot, but uh, this is 20 years before the first X-Men film. You know, you didn't see something with these uh, sort of, uh, you know, mutant powers on a, to a, you know, a large degree. That's uh, a very good a, point, man. In a theatrical film like this. That, that, that does a, I'm really glad you brought up X-Men. That, that, dude, X-Men owes a lot to this movie. I mean, the comic book, of course, existed at the time, you know, but, uh, you know, again, nothing like no, that. No, I'm talking about I'm ta- a, just in cinematic language. Like, I mean, like what yeah, Brian Singer yeah. did, at least obviously informed by scanners. Like, you know, the oh, reason yeah, we're yeah. able to can, you know, consume that so easily is because of scanners and Carrie, you know, and the Fury and all these movies that came before. Well, you know, even Michael Ironside in those features, you know, his interview talks about that he was a reader of uh, science fiction literature as a kid, you know, so he had no problem with these concepts, like, you know, mentally exactly. making the guy's head blow up and stuff, you know. He, that, but again, to an average uh, you know, audience at the time, that these were uh, unheard of kind of concepts. And uh, that's about it. Uh, you know, I, I would like to, uh, you, know, if, if, you know, time permitting or whatever, sometimes I would like to explore some of his other uh, works, especially the earlier films, Shivers, Rabbit, The Brood, Videodrome. I, I've, I've actually seen now uh, all, of, all of Cronenberg's movies. There's not one I haven't seen now. Well, Feature I, I was looking at the list. Uh, well, you haven't seen that Crimes of the Future. Uh, no, I've seen that now. I uh, have. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, uh, it's exactly what stereo is, only it's in color. Okay, that's kind of figured. <laughs> it's, it's the same exact you know, you know, film. Well, it's got different subject matter, but, I mean, it's made the same way, dude. I guess, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for us tonight. Uh, you've been listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. If you guys want to get in touch with us, our email address is themoviecrew at gmail.com. That's themoviecrew, and crew spelled C-R-E-W-E. That's right, extra E at the end of the word, crew, at gmail.com. You guys can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at moviecrewpod. Chris, you're our guest tonight. Where can our audience follow you, sir? Unfortunately, I don't really have much of an online presence, uh, but two of my books are available on Amazon.com under Christopher M. O'Brien. One is the Forrest J. Ackerman oeuvre, and the other one is called Lovecraftian Voyages by Kenneth W. Fagg, Jr., of which I was the co-editor. All right, guys, so we're going to close out the show like we do every single night with a little bit of the soundtrack. We're going to be playing a little bit of Howard Shore's amazing score. We're going to be playing track one titled main titles 
from the Scanners soundtrack. Enjoy. Enjoy. 